My name is Abby. I'm 42 years old. I'm a single mom. My son, Jacob, he just turned 16, which is, well, that's a handful for any kind of mom. The thing is, Jacob is, well, I think he is anyway. I think he's going to. just for his geometry assignment. Why would he draw himself, huh? To demonstrate scale, my ass. Here, look at this. Why would a 14-year-old boy even have this, huh? kid wants to turn his pellet gun into an automatic weapon. Bomb stocks were not invented for fucking air guns, I'll tell you that. I'm sorry, I just... I don't understand why there aren't more resources out there to deal with this kind of thing. I reported them two years ago. And yeah, they launched an investigation, put Jacob under surveillance... Your son provided a rational explanation for every offense. That's what they said. Rational explanation. Now I'm the bad guy, because Jacob served time in a diversion program, and... We had to move. Again. He's already in therapy, so couldn't blame me for that one. Mom's been a shit ton of legal fees to get all this stuff back, too. God forbid it goes on his record. She's like, you don't want to be the boy who cried wolf, do you? I'm like, no, Mom. I don't. And by the way, the boy who cried wolf got eaten by the fucking wolf. This is his room. he's not at school, this is where he spends most of his time. All of his time. This is Adolf. Hi. The last one died, so this is Adolf Jr. Or Adolf Jr. Jr., maybe. As you can see, plays a lot of video games. I think that's pretty normal. I mean, is that normal? Spend five, six hours a day, I don't know, just shooting people. People say it's normal. People. What's not normal? My name is Abby. I'm 42 years old. I'm a single mom. 
I think my 16-year-old son is a psychopath. I'm not trying to prove it anymore. By the time I'm sure, it'll be too late. And I'm not doing this for the authorities either. No, I'm, I'm making these videos for you. For all you other moms out there who know deep down that your kid is a bad kid. But you still love him. Because he's your son. We're going to look for signs. We're going to look for patterns, you and me. And together we're going to figure out if you are that mom. And if your kid is that kid. I'm not saying therapists can't help, but do your own research. And not just on the internet either. There are books, interviews, published studies. Now, okay, so there's the usual stuff. The uh, lack of empathy, antisocial behavior, pathological lying. That's a big one. But then there are the more subtle signs like chronic conspiracy theories or um, racism. That's a big one. NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. Shit, man. I'm a natural born killer. When Dylan Klebold's mother, Sue, wrote this book called A Mother's Reckoning, it is unremittingly poignant, it is unflinchingly honest. Her journey to understanding is engaging, and in particular for us this morning, instructive. Because at its core, this is the story of a mother who did not recognize what was happening in the mind, in the brain of her beloved son until it was too late. And a mother who now shares her story with others in hopes of preventing and helping them recognize a child in distress and of preventing other devastating outcomes. Would you please offer a warm welcome this morning to our guest, Sukhvita. Sue, I'm looking at my clock. We have 40 minutes. What a privilege it is for me to spend the time with you. And join me again. Welcome to London, of course. You can hear and see uh, the interest in your story today. And let me welcome you to Canada as well, because what you will not realize is that this is Sue's first speaking appearance ever in this country. Correct. So we're rather special. <laughs> you write and wrote in a journal in the immediate moments after there is no respite from the agony in those immediate hours and days what was it like to be I, it's very difficult to describe that experience because if we think all of, of the negative emotions a human being can have I mean think through for a moment fear anger stress great heartbreak sorrow I have all of those things you know, on a scale of one to ten, they were all set at ten at the same time. Uh, it was very conflicted because I didn't understand what had happened. I only knew that somehow my son, my promising kid who was going off to college and I thought was a happy human being, had supposedly done this. The community 
when you have something like a murder-suicide, there are two very conflicting pieces of high-profile thing like this. One is the terrible agony to think that he hurt innocent people. I looked in the paper and I saw, you know, weeping mothers and pictures of funerals and children in caskets and to think that my child could do something like that. But in addition to that, I had also lost my own son and I was grieving for him. But along with that sort of bifurcated trauma, there was this firestorm of hatred uh, against our family. Our governor got on national television right from the beginning and made the statement that this was the parents' fault. Something like this is the parents' fault. And so there was this firestorm of um, hatred, and I was terrified. We were living, it was sort of like Anne Frank. I was living, we were staying in someone's basement. I couldn't write a check. I was afraid that someone would learn who I was. I was in terror all the time like when I first went back to work. Um, the, my, I remember my boss showing me the back staircases so that I'd know how to get out. So it was constant uh, fear, heartbreak, exhaustion, confusion. I, I don't even have enough adjectives to describe that. Pathological lying, that's a big one. You know, what was your sense of Dylan's home life? I know you talked about that a little bit. Dylan's life at home is not what is written in Sue's book. Okay, this is this is very important for people to know. You know, I I, I, I knew Sue and and I liked Sue, um, but Sue's book is written by Sue so that she can survive this tragedy and to find meaning in this tragedy for her. It has to be that Dylan committed suicide and she's going to stop suicides and. That's a great way to find meaning and to, to make your life, a, give your life a purpose, okay? Um, so I understand that. But, but if you're going to write a book and you're going to tell the story of your son who is a killer and then committed suicide and was killed by Eric, if you want to debate that point, there's no debate to me, Eric killed Dylan with that question. Um, uh, then you should at least tell the truth. And, and to be honest, Sue's book has... Uh, I ordered Sue's book the minute it came out and waited and waited for it. I got it. I read it the first night sitting in that chair right there all the way through. And as I would read something, I'd go, Judy, listen to this. What the hell? And, and I would be so upset. And then after about five of those, she said, Randy, would you please stop? I'm, I can't think about it right now. I'll read it when you're done. So I said, I'm going to highlight stuff so you don't miss it. Well, I was stupid. She, she can read. So many things are highlighted in the book, it almost became a joke at the end. It was like, well, why am I even highlighting? You know, this is, there's so many things that she just didn't tell about um, that are very important. And, and they're very important, forgetting about Sue, but to understanding Columbine, the process of violentization, they're very important showing Dylan's process through the violentization stages where he's bullied. So then he starts to um, fight back in small ways. And, and then he starts to develop this persona of uh, uh, someone who can fight back with the black coat and the sunglasses to the point where they're at dinner. And I don't even know if this is in Sue's book. And um, Sue says, Dylan, you need to take the coat and the sunglasses off. They're scaring people. And he just kind of looked at her and kept them on because he liked that feeling of the power it gave him. That's part of the process of violentization. Um, 
And that's that, and see all the other hundreds of things that we know fit this concept that, and it's, it's, it's more than one concept. It's humiliation, hypervigilance, and violentization, and the, the way that those three react, and, and, and the process of going through those that develops school shooters. But if she had written about those things, then people reading this could go, and then when they read other things, they go, wait, that fits exactly what Sue said. That's, I just learned something about why this kid did this and, and the process of why he became so angry. It wasn't that he was crazy. He was reacting to the bullying that he was experiencing and he was fighting back. And that answers the question. People go, well, Dylan was the bully. They were the bullies. Well, they weren't the bullies. It's laughable if you knew them. Eric couldn't bully my wife. My wife could beat up Eric, seriously. Um, Eric was 5'7", what, 130 maybe, 125, um, and, and had a low self-image. He had the caved-in chest problem that had been fixed, but it was still there with him mentally. And, and so these kids weren't bullies. They were bullied, but they bullied other kids in a response to the bullying. It was a way of saving face. Right. It's part of the violentization process. And so... If she had just told the truth in the book, it would have helped. And that's why I'm, I know it's awful to say that the book is a lie. Most of the book is a lie. And it matters because people read it and they go, oh, there's no reason why Dylan did this. You've right. got to be kidding me. Of course there's a reason Dylan did this. Right. And she just didn't say it because she doesn't know what it is. Barbara Walters stood right here to get Sue's interview. She came over to our house so that we would get her an interview with Sue. That's how important it was. Right. Um, that's That was the get. That was the best interview. And yes, Sue didn't tell the truth. She waited and waited. And then she put out this book. And now she's doing these. And she's not telling the truth about it. And that, I find that sad. Right. I, I find that disappointing. And I know it, it sounds awful for me to say that. I was a friend of her. Um, you know what? The truth matters more than anything else. Right. Um, and I find that sad because we're talking about children's lives here. Right. Telling the truth on why this happened, that matters. That matters more than whether your feelings are hurt. Right. Or whether, you know, you can't admit your responsibility. I admit my responsibility for Columbine and being right. involved and not doing enough. I put it in the book. I admit that I'm probably responsible for this to right. some degree, for my failure to do my job as a parent, protecting my own children. Um, and I still feel that way. Believe me, that guilt doesn't go away. Um, but I admit to it and I face it, and that's what you have to do. Sue has to face right. what happened here and what turned Dylan into the monster Dylan became. Massey Book Club context of white supremacy. There was no way we could wrap up Columbine and not get in one more Romsty. We had cows listeners. They said, man, one thing I learned from the Catherine Matthew book study this time around 
Romstein appreciation. They said they went on their job and white co-workers started playing the Romstein song. I said, oh, I know that one. I know that one. I said, what? Negro? What do you mean? What? How you? What? When you learned? Oh, we've been studying Columbine. Know all about the Romstein. Oh, yeah. Sue Klebold, ninth and final study session on a mother's reckoning. Loading up to wrap up, we started brief snippet from the film. Talked about it last week. Mothers of Monsters, M O M. So the brief snippets that we heard, you heard Abby talking about her son. She goes in, she shows uh, the schematics of the school. It seems like he has a map, like he's trying to do some sort of Columbine type of a thing. And she even has got so many references to Columbine in the film. Uh, where she says, man, his grandma played all this money to get all this evidence back so it doesn't go on his record. And they talk about that repeatedly in the film. We heard the exact same thing with Eric Harris. We don't want this on his record. Oh, man. He is a smart, bright, white child. We heard her uh, continue. He was in the diversion program. Heard that one before. Talking about... He's normal. He spends all his time in his room and he's playing video games like Doom, killing people and being hostile and what have you. Heard that before. Doesn't like being around other people. Heard all that before. She says she talked to other people. Is this normal? Heard that word a lot in all this. Yep. He's normal. Just what they said about old Dill. She even got to and said, you know what? I gotta be truthful. My son is a psychopath and I submit, even though I don't have children, I think most parents know their child. You've been around this person for some years. You see him all the time. You know if you got a psychopath. It's not no. What? What? Nah. Nah. Come on. Come on. Come on. And she even gets to the end. She starts running down. We're going to look. We're going to research. Know the patterns. What to look for lying the racism so much of it right the conspiracy theories so much of it is right there with both of these two we heard sue klebold she was speaking in canada at the saint joseph's Healthcare foundation in partnership with the canadian mental health association this was the breakfast of champions event in 2017 where she said Oh, Milo, she does it all. The governor is our fault, this firestorm. and all She said, we live like Anne Frank. Now, that's street deal right there. All that exaggeration and lying. Oh, I have the worst life ever. The kids at the restaurant are going to beat me up. Oh, it's World War II and the Nazis. They were going to kick the door down and kill us and put us in the oven any moment. Oh, are you serious? They were bringing you roast beef sandwiches. Even Randy Brown, who we heard from, they came and put hundreds of dollars of bills in your hands. What are you talking about living like Anne Frank? Man, you said, that's another. You sound like old Kanye West, you anti-Semite. Anyway, we get to the last part. That was Randy Brown speaking extensively about this book. And so it's sad to say, I don't think it's sad to say, I don't think it's rough to say, at the end of the day, are we being truthful? This book is a total lie from beginning to end and in so many ways. She even lies, she goes out now saying she lived like 
and Frank. And matter of fact, she lies unnecessarily. She got to go and tell the folks in Canada, hey, it was so bad. It was like Nazi Germany. I couldn't even write a check. Man, you told us in the book you would go write checks and you didn't even need identification. You would give the old Negro humor who would pretend to be me. <laughs> Remember she said that? Get your lies straight, man. Sue Klebold, A Mother's Reckoning. We are all done today. And we get the flex best book club on the planet. Today is September 14. That means Monday was September 11. Columbine and 9-11 are linked. And then we get to the book. Harris's diary also detailed ideas about hijacking an airplane and crashing it into New York City. Some may characterize that as fantasy. A chilling look inside the minds of the Columbine High killers. A videotape captures the teenagers plotting to massacre 250 classmates in cold blood. Allies of Osama bin Laden are arrested in an alleged terror plot to kill Americans. And Ed Bradley shows you what the United States may look like demographically in the next century on the countdown to 2000. Journal Entry, April 2003 Dream made me cry all the way to work. Dylan was a baby, about the size of a doll. I was trying to find a way to lay him down, but there was nowhere safe to put him. I was in a dormitory and found a room full of drawers like a morgue or mausoleum. All the women in the room had a place to put their babies, but I had neglected to put a name on a drawer for him so there was no place to lay him down. He was tired and needed to rest, but I had not managed to make a safe place for him to go. We were already widely blamed, but the depositions would be the decisive appraisal of our competence as parents. Ultimately, our fate would rest in the hands of people who hadn't known our son and who hadn't interacted with us as a family. It didn't take an outside committee to make me feel I had failed Dylan. Each day, I cataloged hundreds of things I wished I had done differently. It seemed highly likely that we would be held responsible. On the basement tapes, Dylan and Eric were blatantly homicidal and suicidal, whipping weapons around like toys. Tom and I had recognized Dylan's room in one segment, so the weapons had been in our home at least one night. The intensity of our son's rage on the tapes made the entire family seem culpable. What could possibly be said to prove his violent tendencies had been hidden? Although it was the truth, I couldn't see how anyone would believe it. I barely believed it myself. I thought often in those days of a young woman I'd met while teaching in a program for at-risk young adults working to get GEDs. Over lunch, she'd told me a story from her childhood— a classmate kept stealing her lunch money. Tired of going hungry, she finally told her father, who threw her into an empty bathtub and beat her with his belt until she could not stand. Don't you ever come to me because you can't handle your own business, he told her. She went to school the next day with a rake handle, which she used to beat the girl who had been stealing from her. Nobody ever bothered her again. 
It was the biggest favor he ever did me, she said, openly amused by my shocked look and the sandwich I'd abandoned. I had been appalled by the story. It haunted me for years. But as we headed toward the depositions, I thought a lot about what it meant to be a good parent. At the time, I'd judged her father to be abusive. But my student had told the story with love and respect. She believed her dad had parented her appropriately, and indeed he had prepared her for the rough environment in which they lived. Had I missed the point? Certainly I was in no position to judge. Perhaps all of us were doing the best we could with the experience, knowledge, and resources we had. The only thing I knew for sure was that Dylan had participated in the massacre in spite of the way he had been raised, not because of it. What I didn't know was how I could possibly convey this to the families of the people he had killed. Even if I could, it would never alleviate the magnitude of their suffering. Nothing would. Our original statement of apology had been published in the newspaper, as well as the one we released on the first anniversary of the massacre. But whenever anyone we knew said anything to the press, the quote was taken out of context. We were threatened and often felt afraid. Unfortunately, our inaccessibility and failure to speak up in our own defense had led people to believe we were hiding secrets. I'd written those difficult letters to each one of the victims' families. Then I had withdrawn to spare them the painful intrusion of hearing from me, even though I wanted nothing more in the world than a connection with them. I had spoken the names of their loved ones like a mantra every day. And yet the only points of contact between us came through our lawyers, or from reading about each other in the paper. I wanted to bridge that distance. I knew from studying other violent incidents that it could significantly reduce trauma if the perpetrator's family could sit down with victims to apologize in person, to cry and hug and talk. As impossible as it was to envision, Acknowledging each other's humanity seemed like the best course of action. As painful as that interaction would surely be, I craved it. Eventually, I had to let that go. I was the last person who could ask for a meeting, and couldn't run the risk of re-traumatizing someone by imposing myself. Each family's recovery from loss is their own. I can only say here, that if speaking with or meeting me would be helpful to any of the family members of Dylan and Eric's victims, I will always be available to them. We have had some contact with a few of the victims' family members over the years, and I believe it was healing for both parties. The father of a boy who died reached out to us about a year after the tragedy. We invited him to our home in December 2001. I was stunned by his generosity of spirit and found great relief in being able to apologize to him in person for Dylan's actions and to express our sorrow for his terrible loss. We wept, shared photos, and talked about our children. When we parted, he said he didn't hold us responsible. They were the most blessed words I could have hoped to hear him say. Around the same time, the mother of one of the murdered girls asked to meet. She was forthright and kind, and I liked her immediately. We both shed a lot of tears at that meeting, but I was able to apologize and to ask questions about her daughter. 
I was touched, she asked about Dylan, and wanted to know who he was. A person of deep faith. This mother feels her daughter's death was predestined, and nothing could have been done to prevent it. I have told her I wish I could agree with her, but I felt a great relief to meet her and believe she took comfort from it, too. I received a lovely note from the sister of a murdered girl, who wrote that she didn't think parents were responsible for the actions of their children. We also received a lovely, sad letter from Dave Sanders' granddaughter. She said she did not hate us or hold us responsible. I treasured both those letters and returned to them time and again for solace. Four years after the depositions, eight years after the massacre, I would meet another father whose son was murdered at the school. But at the time we were deposed, I had met only two people who had lost children at the school, and thirty-six families were making claims against us. As the day approached, I had no idea what to expect or who would be there when we faced each other in the courtroom. Journal Entry, July 2003 Still struggling with fear, anxiety, and feelings of craziness, there is no safe place to park my overburdened mind. I feel frightened, beaten, and on the brink of crossing over a line to madness and not coming back. I'm constantly aware of myself, thinking about my state of mind and about death. I was okay until these damn panics started. I was making it okay. Now I'm afraid I'll never be okay again. The pressure mounted as the date of the depositions approached. Over dinner one night, Tom and I had a long conversation about the afterlife. I worried a great deal about Dylan, even after his death. I was terrified his spirit would not be allowed to rest in peace because of his crimes. It was hard enough to know Dylan had suffered in life. I could not bear the idea that he continued to suffer in death, too. As we were getting into bed... I had a debilitating panic attack. It was not the first panic attack I had ever experienced. I had been a nervous, fearful child, prone to late-night anxiety, but that night's attack was the worst I'd ever had. My thoughts spiraled out of control, and I trembled and cried as my mind pitched in terror. Those panic attacks lasted through the time of the depositions and beyond. They would strike without warning, at the hardware store, in a meeting at work, while I was driving in the car. Like a tsunami, a sudden overpowering surge of blinding fear would rise up in front of me, then crash down. These floods of incapacitating terror were worse by far than the grief. Sometimes the attacks would run into each other one after another, and I'd lose hours, even whole afternoons. I drank gallons of chamomile tea, tried every homeopathic remedy for anxiety I could find at the health food store. I was terrified I would not be able to get through my deposition and tortured myself with imagining what would happen if I had an anxiety attack while on the stand. Reading my journals from that period is revealing to me now. It is clear on every single page that I am hanging on by a thread. I am not allowed to talk about what happened during the depositions, except to say it was terribly painful and, I believe, unsatisfying for everyone involved. 
I can, however, share a regret. I wanted to apologize to the families in person at the depositions, but our lawyers didn't agree. This isn't the time or place, I was told. I wish I had fought harder to say those words. I believe their absence was deeply felt by everyone in the room, and continues to be to this day. Saying I am profoundly sorry is one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. Neuroscientists like to say behavior is the result of a complex interaction between nature and nurture. At some time in the future, we will likely be able to point to the specific combination of neurotransmitters that lead a person to commit acts of unspeakable violence. I will personally rejoice on the day neurobiologists map the precise mechanism in the brain responsible for empathy and for conscience. Needless to say, we're not yet there. We do know from researchers like Dr. Victoria Arango that there are clear brain differences between people who die by suicide and people who do not. Dr. Kent Keel and others have demonstrated that there also appear to be some clear brain differences between people who commit homicide and people who do not. I have spent a lot of time wondering whether Dylan had a biological predisposition toward violence, and if so, whether or not we were responsible. I did not consume alcohol while I was pregnant with Dylan. He was not abused in our home, physically, verbally, or emotionally nor was he subjected to anyone else being abused. He was not raised in poverty or exposed, to my knowledge, to toxins such as heavy metals, which have been connected to violent behavior. Neither of his parents abused alcohol or drugs. He was well-nourished. Even if Dylan did have a biological predisposition toward violence, biology isn't destiny. What forces had aggravated this tendency in him? The governor of Colorado cited parenting as a causal factor in his first public appearance after the shootings. But Tom and I knew exactly what had happened in our home all those years we parented Dylan, and we were equally sure the answer wasn't there. This was what I wanted to say in the depositions, not because I had any thought of clearing our names or setting the record straight, but because it was such a crucial opportunity to broaden our understanding of how tragedies like Columbine happen. Dylan did not learn violence in our home. He did not learn disconnection or rage or racism. He did not learn a callous indifference to human life. This I knew. I wanted to say that Dylan had been loved. I loved him while I was holding his pudgy hand on our way to get frozen yogurt after kindergarten. While reading Dr. Seuss's exuberant there's a walket in my pocket, to him for the thousandth time, while scrubbing the grass stains out of the knees of his pint-sized Little League uniform so he could wear it to pitch the next day. I loved him while we were sharing a bowl of popcorn and watching Flight of the Phoenix together a month before he died. I still loved him. I hated what he had done, but I still loved my son. Morality, empathy, ethics— these weren't one-time lessons, but embedded in everything we did with our kids. I'd taught the boys what I myself believe, that we should treat others as we wish to be treated. Dylan was expected to help our neighbors with their yard work without the expectation of payment, because that's what neighbors do, and to hold the door open for the person coming in behind him, 
because that's what gentlemen do. I'm a teacher by constitution. Everything I knew and cared about and valued I poured into my kids. A trip to the grocery store wasn't merely a stopover to restock the fridge, but a way to show my boys how to select the freshest apple, an invitation to think about the hardworking farmers who had grown it, and to talk about the ways fruits and vegetables make a growing body healthy and strong. It was a chance for me to introduce the vocabulary words carmine and vermilion. I showed Dylan how to be gentle putting the fruit into the basket. We let an elderly lady with one or two items slip ahead of us in line. We made eye contact and said a polite thank you to the cashier. Nervous about inattentive drivers, I would take his hand when we went to tuck our shopping cart back into its spot so it couldn't roll out and dent someone else's car. My approach changed slightly as the boys grew, but the message never did. Driving home from Little League, I tried to counterbalance the sport's natural message of competition with one of empathy. The kids on the other team are just like you. Dylan came to work with me whenever the opportunity arose, and though I never saw the students I worked with as teaching moments, he learned better than most kids and through exposure that people were more than their cerebral palsy or their amputated limb. He saw, too, that even after terrible difficulty, people could create meaningful and productive lives. Similarly, Tom had worked to help his boys become good men. Through sports, he helped them understand fair play, the importance of a heartfelt effort, and the pleasure of teamwork. Working with them on repairs, he taught them science and engineering and construction, as well as the satisfaction in solving a challenging problem, not to mention the thrift and gratification of fixing something broken instead of throwing it away. He prompted them to do their chores without complaining and helped them to remember me on special occasions like Mother's Day. We had not done everything right. The research I have done has taught me better ways I might have interacted with Dylan. I wish I had listened more instead of lecturing. I wish I had sat in silence with him instead of filling the void with my own words and thoughts. I wish I had acknowledged his feelings instead of trying to talk him out of them, and that I'd never accepted his excuses to avoid conversation. I'm tired, I have homework to do, when something felt off. I wish I'd sat in the dark with him and repeated my concerns when he dismissed them. I wish I'd dropped everything else to focus on him, probed and prodded more, and that I had been present enough to see what I did not. Even with these regrets, there were no obvious indications he was planning something destructive. I have heard many terrible stories of good people struggling to parent seriously ill, violent kids. I have nothing but compassion for them and feel we must rehabilitate a health care system that too often leaves them out in the cold. If you want to feel sick to your stomach, listen to a mom tell you about the day her volatile ten-year-old narrowly missed stabbing her with the kitchen shears, and how it felt to call the police on him because she was worried the lock on his younger sister's bedroom door wouldn't hold against his rage. Too often, parents of seriously disturbed kids are forced to get the criminal justice system involved even though it is drastically ill-equipped to manage brain illness, simply because there is nowhere else to turn.
Unless a family can afford a private clinic, the choice is often between denying the severity of the problem and calling the cops. The question of accountability is not theoretical for those mothers. As huge as my empathy is for those mothers, my situation was very different. Dylan showed no clear and present danger the way some children do. He was going to school, holding down a job in the evening and applying to colleges. Days before the massacre, he was eating dinner with us as usual, keeping the conversation light and carrying his dirty dishes to the sink. He did hole up in his room, but he hadn't withdrawn from his peers. He did not have access to weapons in our home, nor did he display any unseemly fascination with them. He was occasionally truculent and irritable, as many teenagers are, but we never saw any hint of the rage he displayed on the basement tapes. He did not threaten us, get into physical altercations, or allude to plans to hurt others. Neither Tom nor I had ever, not once, felt afraid of him. We thought we saw evidence our parenting was working. Dylan was a good and loyal friend, a loving son, and he appeared to be growing into a responsible adult. In his writing, there is ample proof that he had absorbed the teachings we had worked so hard to impart. His journals are filled with his struggles with conscience, and yet, at the end of his life, something overwrote the lessons we had taught him. Not all influence comes from within the home, and this is especially true in the case of teenagers. Nurture refers to all the environmental factors a person encounters. Dylan was interested in gratuitously bloodthirsty movies like Reservoir Dogs and Natural Born Killers, but so was every boy we knew. We did not buy those movies or take him to the theater to see them. We also did not forbid them in our home after he reached the age of 17, figuring he would get access to them if he wanted to. He was working and had his own money. We did talk to him about our concerns. He also played Doom, one of the earliest first-person shooter games. I hadn't liked the game, but I'd mostly worried that Dylan's computer use would isolate him, which hadn't been the case at all. My primary complaint about video games was how dumb they were, a waste of time. As with everything, my take on video games was filtered through my primary belief in Dylan's goodness. It would never have crossed my mind that he was capable of making the leap from shooting people on screen to shooting them in real life. Looking back, that was a mistake. There is good research now to show that violent games like Doom decrease empathy, and increase aggressive behavior. Detractors point out that millions play these games, an estimated 10 million people have played Doom, and only a tiny fraction of those go on to commit violence. But Dr. Dewey Cornell, a forensic clinical psychologist and author of more than 200 papers on psychology and education, including studies of juvenile homicide, school safety, bullying, and threat assessment, gave me his take on entertainment violence. One cigarette won't give you lung cancer, and some people smoke their whole lives without getting lung cancer. That doesn't mean there's no correlation. Entertainment violence may not be sufficient cause for a rampage, but it is a toxic factor. A small number of the most vulnerable people will get lung cancer after smoking. 
when other factors and predispositions come into play. The same thing can be said about violent entertainment and acts of violence. The most vulnerable are at special risk. But Tom and I did not perceive Dylan as vulnerable, nor did anyone else. Dylan's vulnerabilities were probably the same ones that had made him so susceptible to Eric, another toxic influence. I was blind to it because I never perceived Dylan to be a follower. He was agreeable by nature, a typical younger sibling. He'd go along with Byron's games when the boys were young, and Tom and I could generally get him to do what we needed him to do without pushback. But I had plenty of opportunity to observe Dylan with his friends, and those relationships were equally negotiated. I never felt Zack or Nate had the upper hand with him. If Nate had a hankering for pizza while Dylan was craving McDonald's, they worked it out. I still resist the idea that Dylan was nothing more than a passive follower. Eric's charm and charisma were undeniable, and he was adroitly fooling adults, some of them mental health professionals, including a counselor and a psychiatrist. And yet, I cannot easily explain how Dylan turned his back on seventeen years of empathy and conscience. Eric may have been the one who was single-mindedly focused on homicide, but Dylan went along. He did not say no. He did not tell us about the plan, or tell a teacher or one of his other friends. Instead, he said yes, and entered into a plot so diabolical it defies description. I will never know why Dylan latched on to the violence, Eric suggested. His journals make clear that Dylan was profoundly insecure and felt hopelessly inadequate. Eric probably made him feel validated and accepted and powerful in a way nobody else did, and then offered him the chance to show the world just how powerful the two of them really were. Dr. Adam Lankford cites, A desire for fame, glory, or attention as a motive for mass shooters. Ralph Larkin calls it, Killing for Notoriety. Mark Jurgensmeyer, who writes about religious terrorism, calls it the public performance of violence, and argues that acts like these have symbolic as well as strategic goals. Sociologist Dr. Catherine Newman, author of Rampage, ties it directly to image rehabilitation when she says school shooters are searching for a way to retire their public image as dweebs and misfits, exchanging it for something more alluring the dangerous, violent anti-hero. I was surprised not to be asked in the depositions the details of how we'd handled discipline, movies, video games, Dylan's friendships, drugs and alcohol, clothing, firecrackers. But an in-depth look at the root causes of the catastrophe was outside the purview of the proceedings. The depositions were not a place to talk about bullying or gun safety or school climate or the immaturity of the adolescent brain. I had not yet begun to talk to experts myself. Even at that early stage, though, I was clear on one point. I did not and do not believe I made Dylan a killer. If I had thought there was something seriously wrong with him, I would have moved mountains to fix it. If I had known about Eric's website, or the guns, or about Dylan's depression— I would have parented differently. As it was, I parented the best way I knew to parent the child I knew, not the one he had become without my knowledge. 
Unsurprisingly, the news reports after the depositions were highly inflammatory, as so much of the coverage had been. The sealed transcripts of the proceedings gave the impression we were hiding something, again. I wanted to share the transcripts with the public. Why not? I was tired of fielding the implication I had something to hide when I spent my days hunting for answers. Perhaps naively, I still hoped releasing the transcripts might finally put to bed the idea there was a single reason the tragedy had happened. And unlike the basement tapes, there was no danger of contagion from releasing them. Unfortunately, it wasn't my decision. All four parents of the shooters had been deposed, and the attorneys never reached consensus on everyone's best interests. Eventually, the judge decided to seal the depositions for twenty years. I hadn't said everything I wanted to say when I was deposed, but I thought if the families could see and hear me, they'd understand that whatever the engine for Dylan's crimes had been, it had not started in our home. The papers the next morning showed me my folly. There it was again. Conscientious parents would have known what their sons were planning. Our failure to know meant we were responsible. Nothing would ever change how people perceived us. I shredded the newspaper in my hands and pounded the bed with my fists until my wailing subsided. Hurt as I was, I also understood. I, too, had believed a good parent should know what her kids were thinking. If the situations had been reversed, if someone else's son had murdered Dylan while he was catching up on his homework in the school library, I would have blamed that family, too. I continued to experience high levels of stress, loss of sleep, and poor concentration after the depositions. Ten days afterward, we heard that the plaintiffs were ready to settle. The lawyers acted as if this was a great relief, but I didn't feel the least bit uplifted. No legal resolution would alleviate the dread that sat in the center of my chest, the hopeless feeling that I had reached the end of my ability to cope. With medication and therapy, my panic attacks eventually subsided. We went back to our lives, continuing to learn to live without Dylan and with the knowledge of what he had done. Chapter 18 The Wrong Question Grief has a life cycle. Many people have told me they started to emerge from the fog after about seven years, and that was true for me as well. By 2006, I was starting to feel better. I did not miss Dylan any less, and an hour did not pass where I did not think with pain and sadness about his victims and their families. But I wasn't crying every day, or wandering through the world like a zombie. With the legal restrictions lifted, I began to wonder if I could help promote a better understanding of suicide by speaking out. Through my work in suicide prevention, I'd met two other survivors of murder-suicide. It had helped us to talk to one another. Most suicide-loss survivors struggle with grief, guilt, and humiliation, but when a family member commits murder in the last moments of his life, it changes him in your mind and alters the way you grieve for him. You never stop asking if something you did caused him to behave as he did. The media attention can be traumatizing. 
These other survivors of murder-suicide believed, as I did, that suicide had been a driving factor behind their loss. And yet the public persisted in seeing these acts exclusively as murders. We wanted to show that murder-suicide is a manifestation of suicide, and to help people to understand that suicide prevention is also murder-suicide prevention. So when I found out the University of Colorado at Boulder was hosting a conference called Violence Goes to College, I decided to organize a panel discussion on murder-suicide. Tom had found my immersion in the suicide prevention and loss community depressing, and he felt even more strongly about my murder-suicide research. He called our panel the Adams Family. I think he thought I was refusing to move on, and I sometimes wondered if he was right. I amassed a library of books about the adolescent brain, about suicide, murder-suicide, and the biology of violence, seeking out inconvenient truths and uncomfortable realities. Part of it, perhaps, was penance. Another part, self-protection. If I sought out the very worst, then it could never catch me unawares. Underneath it all, though, there was simply a compulsion to understand. How could Dylan, raised in our home, have done this? I wanted to claim Dylan as my son. I wanted to stand up and tell people that as much grief and regret as I felt for those he had hurt and killed, he was still loved. Unfortunately, I wasn't yet ready. In the weeks leading up to my appearance on the panel, I went with a friend to see her daughter perform in a play at her college. It should have been a beautiful weekend, but being on campus with all those young people triggered something inside me. It was the first time I'd visited a college campus since I'd been to the University of Arizona with Dylan, and whenever I saw a tall, skinny boy enjoying college life, my heart would clutch. Walking across the beautiful campus, I was jolted by a severe panic attack, my first since the spell I'd had during the depositions. I had another during the play we'd come to see, and another over dinner. Flipping through the channels in my hotel room while I was waiting for my friends to pick me up the next morning, I landed on I'll Cry Tomorrow, the 1955 biopic of singer Lillian Roth. During Susan Hayward's portrayal of Roth's alcohol-induced nervous breakdown, I had a panic attack so acute I thought it would kill me. That weekend began a terrible period. It was as if my brain had an accelerator spring stuck in the floored position. In previous periods of panic, I had focused on death, but this time I thought about fear. I became afraid of being afraid. Anything could trigger an attack. Driving past the coroner's office where they'd taken Dylan's body, boom. Watching an old movie where a cowboy throws dynamite into a barn, boom. Red flowers on a bush. Boom. My digestive system has always been my Achilles heel, and I became afraid to eat because of the constant intestinal upsets that came with the panic. Because the attacks were triggered by anything that reminded me of Dylan's death, my therapist felt they were a manifestation of post-traumatic stress disorder. She was clear about my course of treatment. I needed to take the tranquilizers a doctor had prescribed but I was afraid of becoming addicted to them, and so I'd only take half a pill or a quarter. 
enough to dull the edge of my anxiety, but not enough to give me a true sense of well-being or to allow my racing mind to rest. Underneath it all, I felt as if my suffering indicated an essential character flaw. Cut it out, I thought viciously to myself. Get yourself together. You should be able to think your way out of this. My therapist believed I wasn't ready to appear on the panel, but I was compelled to follow through on my commitment, whatever the cost, and my compulsion to publicly represent normalcy made the pressure worse. I wanted to demonstrate that I wasn't controlled by my fear. In trying to prove it, I created a trap for myself. As the day of the panel approached, my panic attacks became more frequent and intense. One evening on my drive home, the sensations were so acute that I was sure I'd cause an accident. I had never had a truly suicidal thought before, but now I looked over at the passenger seat and thought, if there were a gun there, I would use it to make this stop. I clutched at the steering wheel and thought clearly to myself, this cannot go on. I got through the panel presentation with some help. On my therapist's recommendation, a friend taped my answers so I could simply press play if unable to speak. I ended up relying on the tape about half the time. It was a difficult day for everyone who appeared on the panel, but a successful one nonetheless. The evaluations showed clearly that we'd made a real difference in the way people understood murder-suicide. One called it a revelation. Another went so far as to apologize to us for the way she'd thought about our cases before. I began taking the tranquilizers as they were prescribed, and with medication, therapy, and lots of long walks, the debilitating attacks eventually began to subside. I now understand that anxiety is a brain disorder I will live with and manage for the rest of my life. Even when I am not in crisis, the possibility is always with me. Because of this vulnerability, I carefully monitor my response to stress, as people at high risk for stroke monitor their blood pressure. I meditate, do yoga and deep breathing exercises, and exercise daily. I see a therapist and take antidepressant medication if I need extra help. Over time, I have come to listen to my anxiety and to recognize it as an indication of something amiss. As the years passed, the distance between Tom and me continued to widen, leaving us with almost no common ground and no way to build a bridge back to each other. In 2014, after 43 years of marriage, we decided to part ways, a decision I could only make after I realized that the thought of staying in the relationship made me feel more stress than the idea of leaving it. We ended our marriage to save our friendship, and I believe we will always care for each other. I am grateful for that. As I emerged from the dark and terrifying period of those last panic attacks, I felt like Dorothy stepping cautiously into the technicolor land of Oz. Once safe on the other side, I saw that my own crisis had served as an enlightenment of sorts. It had taught me some things I needed to know in order to better understand Dylan's life and his death.
details tonight on a Central Ohio teenager accused of plotting what prosecutors call a Columbine-style shooting. We are now learning the 17-year-old Hilliard Davidson student will be tried as an adult. Thank you for joining us tonight at 11. I'm Ellie Merritt. And I'm Mike Jackson. The mass shooting was foiled after a fellow student heard the teenager discussing his plans on a school bus last year. Nearly a year after the arrest, the teenager is now facing a felony after being indicted by a grand jury today. NBC4's Sean Lanier spoke with the teenager's attorney who believes the young man needs help more than anything. Yeah, he told me that this decision will not change how they will approach this case, but he says that this 17-year-old should have had his case in juvenile court where he could have got the help he believes he needs. We're allowed to disagree with the court's decision, and obviously we do. It was something this defense attorney did not expect. His client, 17-year-old John Staley III, accused of plotting a mass shooting at Hilliard Davidson High School last September when he was 16 years old. According to the indictment, Staley had a detailed plan for the shooting. It claims he created diagrams of different locations in the school, wrote down what weapon types along with how much ammunition was needed, and even recruited other students to help him. New court documents obtained by NBC4 goes on to say Staley had used his school-issued iPad and his personal cell phone to research school shootings, how to obtain weapons, and other, quote, disturbing information. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. One more session to go before we are all done. Sue Klebold, Columbine at large. My man, uh, old coward down at Parkland. So that's my jam, Gusty. You can't wrap this all up and not get my song in, man. It's... I'll blow up a whole kindergarten school. You get that song on. That's my. We had a Cows listener talking about music appreciation from Columbine. Said they had heard this song, which all of us probably have. I told you just on YouTube alone, it's got a billion. I think a different listener looked and saw on Spotify, it's got a billion point five listens. So all of us have probably heard it at least once, maybe more. He said he'd heard this song all those times before. He didn't know this was about white people shooting up the school. Still learning. I'd never heard the song, period. So, or maybe I'd heard it and I just didn't know I'd heard it. But still learning. That old coward. That's his song. Loves this one. Any hoodles. Context of white supremacy. Catherine Massey Book Club. One more section to go before we are all done. Transformative experience reading this text. The number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. 
press star 61 if you would like to participate. Final thoughts. What did you learn from all of this? What is the import of all of this 25 years on? Takeaway points. Why did Sue Klebold write this book? Now, we had people investigate from the beginning. Out of our poll, 45% of the folks, money. Number two was deflecting blame. But number one was money. Do we still think that? Different thoughts? We'll see. The email is untiljustice at gmail.com. I will share quickly. One news report. There's so much material on this case. This would be one. I'd say O.J. Simpson would be another one. Would This would easily be a case, even this more so than O.J. Simpson, because that case is kind of done. I can't see too much more evidence coming out unless they do a DNA match and find the killer or killers. Uh, but this case, those depositions are coming, 2027. So there is an addendum coming with all of this. Uh, but it, I think just in the vein of still learning to have cases that you research for life. Now, it could be a lynching or groups of lynchings or an aspect of state history or anything, but something that you just, I have a folder, I have a file on my computer or have a little flash drive or whatever. But have one or two cases. You can make these family projects and such. Could be a, come a book 10, 15 years later or a documentary or a website or who knows, a museum, who knows. Have a project, something constructive, hopefully related to counter-racism. Now, this case, going back 2004, May 17th, Columbine parents outraged families of victims lash out at Klebold's interview comments. This is from the now defunct Rocky Mountain News, Lynn Bartels. Seething is too mild a word to describe the reaction that some Columbine families felt after reading an interview with gunman Dylan Klebold's parents. Don Fleming, whose daughter Kelly was killed when Klebold and Eric Harris ambushed Columbine High School, said he was outraged at Tom and Sue Klebold's comments to a columnist for the New York Times. Dylan did not do this because of the way he was raised. Sue Klebold said he did it in contradiction to how he was raised. She repeated that phrase in the book this week. She just restated it. In spite, that's what she, and she put it in italics, in spite of how he was raised mother superior it is the couple's first public statements in the five years since their son took part in the deadliest school shooting in u.s history formerly fleming said he believes that in reality neither the klebolds nor the harrises <clears throat> were engaged in their children's lives that they ignored police contacts with their sons and that they let the two continue to hang out together after they were arrested for breaking into a van the klebolds are totally disgusting, Fleming said Sunday. They're saying, we really regret missing the warning signs, but we did nothing wrong. That's a contradiction. Someone else said that. Lots of contradictions in this book. Lots of contradictions in this book. Phyllis and Al Velasquez, whose son Kyle was killed by Klebold, were equally upset. I'm just pausing here because... Everyone who has commented about Kyle Velasquez in our book study has said they think he would not be accepted as white, which would mean they killed two non-white people in the library. It continues, I, went, I vented to Al as I read the whole thing. 
Phyllis Velasquez said, I can't say a whole lot nice about the Klebolds, and it's not just the New York Times article. It's the depositions, 2027. The Klebolds are clueless. The Flemings and Velasquez's were some of five Columbine families to sue the gunman's parents in U.S. District Court after the April 20, 1999 massacre. The families were present when the gunman's parents gave their depositions, which have been kept secret, 2027. The victims' families believe the depositions should be made public because they say the Klebolds and Harris's answers will reveal what kind of parents they were. But some Columbine families have different thoughts. Among them is Beth Nemo, whose daughter Rachel Scott was killed. Our family doesn't take the popular road where some of the Columbine families are coming from, Nemo said Sunday. People ask me all the time who I blame for Columbine. I blame Eric and Dylan. Excellent way to place to start. They are the ones that conceived this plan and they are the ones who carried it out. Who I am I think it's supposed to be who am I to say, but it is written who I am to say that the gunman's parents made all the wrong choices in raising those boys. I can't imagine them having any proper knowledge about this without taking constructive steps and their grieving also. Klebold and Harris seniors at Columbine killed 12 students and a teacher and wounded about two dozen, some seriously, before killing themselves. The Klebolds talked to David Brooks, whose column was printed in Saturday's New York Times. We've heard that before. Some of the interview contains facts already known. Blah, blah, blah. Might be enough. Let's see. Fleming. Oh, I had to get this in as well. Fleming said he was also upset by the columnist's description of the Klebolds as well-educated and intelligent and how their son was going to college. He called Tom and Susan Klebold elitists. We got some of them in our listening audience. They don't think they're responsible for anyone, he said. For as highly educated as they are, they thought this couldn't happen to their son. They're elitists. They thought this was something white trash would carry out whoa whoa what whoa mincing no words but I can't even say much because the most important line in the book that we've read up now about 98% of the most important line to the book in my view is that line we got last week where she said this shooting that my child carried out this didn't happen in one of those supposedly godless towns New York LA this was a nice upstanding place with no drugs at like ooh, ooh. who exactly do you think in these New York and LA is godless filth drug ridden like man get out as you sit in your racially restricted Colorado suburb yeah I could I could see how someone might think yeah these are some old elitists in their old mansion house with their pool and tennis courts looking down at yeah I could see how one might think that hmm. anywho uh, last, oh last paragraph they said the perception changed six months oh wait 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 the Velasquez also questioned the columnist description that Klebold was widely seen as the follower who was led by Eric Harris into this nightmare. They said that perception 
changed six months after the shootings with the airing of the videotapes that we haven't seen. The Harris and Klebo made of themselves on which they talk about carrying out their plan. They appear to be equal co-conspirators. In one video, Klebo makes derogatory remarks about his family, meaning the Klebo family, which, yes, that is true. I see them feeding off each other, Phyllis Velasquez said. The Velasquez's also took exception to Susan Klebold's comment about a toxic culture at Columbine that included jock worship and the tolerance of bullying. I'm tired of that excuse, Phyllis Velasquez said. She pointed out that her son had learning disabilities, was overweight, and was bullied, but didn't kill his classmates in retaliation. Well, in, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Gotta get the last one. Brooks, David Brooks, suspected racist, concluded this column by saying that Dylan Klebold was a self-initiating moral agent who made his choices and should be condemned for them. Neither his school nor his parents determined his behavior, Brooks wrote. Now his parents are left with terrible consequences. I'd say they're facing them bravely and honorably. Fleming said to face this bravely and honorably, they would go out and talk about what was wrong with their son. They won't do that. They're cowards. Oh, my word. Oh, C-O-W-A-R-D-S. Yup. And liars. Number is 605-313-5164. The code 564. Four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate that report again Columbine parents outraged families of victims lash out at Klebold's interview comments from 2004 before I nab our callers we did have lots of dudes email from last week and say they have never from the school roof I do find it suspicious that the male callers were not present to verbally respond to this question they restricted their response to writing and after the fact suspicion notwithstanding one person that did write raised an important point he said I've never urinated from the rooftop of the school I've never even gotten access to the rooftop of the school. Isn't that normally locked? (laughs) That is a great point. We've talked so much about insurance during all of this. Man, the insurance company normally would have something to say about allowing, I don't know, 14, 15 year olds unfettered access to the rooftop to do God knows what. I know if I had got on the rooftop in high school, I would not have urinated we would have had a shit list and we would have been throwing balloons, eggs, something at the folks on our list, not urine. But I don't think we could have got on the roof. Like it's normally like, is it that lawless? If you go to a white school, like you can smoke marijuana on school ground, you can go up on the roof. Like it's that lawless, leave bombs all over the school. Just do whatever you want to do. (sighs) Star six, one, let's ride last one. So final thoughts, Columbine, what did we learn? Folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Proceed. Hello, can I be heard? Non-Clemson dad woke baby mama C. 
uh, hello everyone. Thanks. I hope everyone's having a wonderful evening. So, uh, a couple of things I've learned uh, listening to this book over the last couple of weeks. Some of the things that my um, me and my wife have discussed. Uh, um, the fact that Sue Quibo divorced her husband. We think that um, she divorced him because he was unwilling to basically toe the line about um, whether or not Dylan was at fault. Even though Tom is a suspected racist, I personally do think that he helps, he had some kind of, um, what's the word, guilt about his son committing such a horrible act and therefore didn't want to make a public spectacle after the fact. While Sue uh, basically, um, as far as she was concerned, is you know, obviously still her son. And, um, you know, being a white supremacist that she is, she was not going to let just the world just condemn him for the murderer that he is. Uh, let's see. Um, she clearly talked about the video game Doom. I think it's been around for over 20 years, maybe even 30 years, as one of the reasons that he committed these murders, basically saying that he was susceptible to the video game making him more violent. Um, I found that particular line of logic interesting. I think that's the same kind of logic that white people use when they blame black people for whatever crime they blame them for. Like, well, shoot, they're a black person, therefore um, big, um, criminalization, being rapist, and all the um, crimes that black people will ever commit is ingrained in their DNA. Um, therefore, it's correct to blame them and punish them versus someone like her white son, where, well, susceptible to this and it made him this way versus he was just that way and enjoyed the violence. Um, I do find it interesting. Obviously, we've been able to read through this book and I think it's been alluded to multiple times as we've gone and gone through this book. Everyone who disagreed with this book, um, I don't think any of them were really given an opportunity to talk about their side of the story um, to the media in any capacity. But this woman has been able to go around the country, um, make this book, probably make quite a bit of money, and also um, get to hide what was clearly bad parenting behind stupid excuses of mental illness. And then um, last thing, um, does anyone remember that story of the kid who fell into the gorilla pit at, the, I think, the Cincinnati Zoo and how the media went out of his way to blame who was not even there. Nevertheless, they blamed him anyway. I find it very interesting that they could find a way to blame a black father for a kid that does something when he when the father wasn't even there. But when it comes to um, people like Sue Klebold and her son, where she clearly was there, somehow she missed all the things he was doing up until he committed this mass atrocity, but somehow she's not a bad parent, even though she was clearly there. And with that, I'll mute my line. Oh, no, not with that. Did you pee off of the school roof at any point, non-Clemson dad? Um, I've never been able to make it to the school roof to pee off of it. Normally, I would say, see, he didn't answer our question, but I guess if you can't access the roof, then I guess you can't urinate from it. All right, we'll accept that. Emphatic <laughs> Much obliged, much obliged, much obliged. Uh, we had uh, male call. Oh, I do remember since he did it. I do, yes. Harambi, I think, was his. Well, I have to double check his name, but I think it might have been Harambi, the gorilla at the zoo. Yes, 
and they had to kill him where he just fell in the pit. They were so angry with that black child. So I'm sorry, say it again. Rambi the albino gorilla? He said the albino. I don't remember. I don't think he was albino. It's been some years. So I had to go back and look. I don't remember if he was albino or not, but I know. Uh, I think his name was a Rambi. Yeah, he just. I think his name was a Rambi. But he, the child, the black child, fell in the in the pit, and the gorilla. Uh, he they shot him, and people were so angry that they had to kill this gorilla to save a black child. They wanted the parents criminally charged. I played it on the compensatory call-in. It was 2016, the year of Trump's triumph. First time around, he might get another one. Who knows? Uh, but it was leading up to his win. The district attorney had to come out and do a press conference and announce that the mother was not going to be criminally charged. And I remember the metaphor that he used specifically was, we're not going to prosecute her. It's not like she was in the bathroom smoking crack or something. And I did the rewind, play that back again, play it back. Yeah, I remember that vividly. It, oh, my God. It is. I, she's not getting no book. She's not getting no speaking tour. We don't want to hear from your son, you, your husband, maybe even your grandparents. All of y'all should have been in jail. I don't want to hear no excuses, mental illness, brain problems. <laughs> lost to Rambi because of these no-count niggers. Put that child in jail, too. He probably was trying to rape someone. Much obliged, non-Clemson dad. Uh, male caller, I heard two people, I think, speak simultaneously. Uh, was it a male caller or someone spoke up with non-Clemson yeah. dad? There we yeah, go. it does. Yeah. Elitist, yeah, that's one of our elitists right there, there, see? And did you <laughs> pee off the roof? Um, the, 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 the male people that wrote, the males that, uh, Victims, I'm assuming the victims of white supremacy that emailed in. I wouldn't have had access to the roof. These were heavily policed um, at my year at uh, West Side High School in uh, North Jersey. So, no, <laughs> we couldn't. We probably could. I wouldn't even say. I wouldn't even know how to get to the roof. To be honest. So the answer is no. Right on, right on. Yeah, okay, but Gus, uh, man, it's, it's a whole lot to, uh, man. So this woman, okay, my conclusion, money is just the end result and just the consequence of all this media attention that Sue was getting. So I'm convinced. This was just her trying to explain away and escape guilt. And in the process, she enjoyed the attention. Because when I Google her, no, when I Google villain Klebold, underneath his name, it says the son of Sue Klebold. So she is just now as infamous as her son. Because if you Google the song, the mother pops up. Um, she said that she could have died from panic attacks. Honestly, it might sound cool. She should have died because this woman has just went on a relentless terror campaign, terrorizing the victim of Columbine. Um, Somebody apologized to her. 
are you are you serious? So mission accomplished in Kibo. That that was that was the whole goal. You know what I mean? First to um exonerate her and her son for her to get then from, from doing this, she gained attention and by default, fame and money. Um, Tom got it right. He referred to their suicide panel as the Adams family. Yes. You, you, you are a monster. You're a monster. And she wanted to show people that her son was loved. Like, that, that was your main ambition? That was your ambition after what your son has done to not only our community, but to the nation and to the planet. Because his actions, along with Harris, it, it basically uh, provoked and inspired mass shooters across the planet. So, man, this woman, this, this woman is despicable. Uh, she says, uh, she said something about she couldn't wait till her legal restrictions was lifted and she can begin her terror campaign. They should have had those legal restrictions put on her for life. We should not be sitting here suffering and listening to this psychopath, uh, um, Sue Kimball. So <laughs> I quote. Oh, and I also want to add this. I'm just I'm just so happy that uh, the crime in Chicago wasn't a thing because it would have been the god the godless places like New York City, L.A. and she would she would have flew in Chicago. <laughs> so I'm just so happy that Chicago wasn't a thing when she wrote this book. I hope. That's right. That's right. Chicago has taken that. Like now, if you need to signify a land of lawless Negro crime, <laughs> that's where that's where Phoebe Zerwer she said when the call asked, he was like, "Are you afraid of what?" Hey, 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 I have been raped south side of Chicago. What are you talking? About? <laughs> uh, okay. Woo! I was able to check. It was. Harambe, uh, he was not Albano, but his name was Harambe, and he did get killed, and they did want to criminally prosecute his parents for, I don't know, being nigger at the zoo. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Oh, I thought I'd already try that again. Thought I'd already done that. Let's see. Not the Fresh Princess of Philly. Yes, ma'am. Good evening, Gus and Caller. Excuse me. So what have I learned? I learned that nothing out of Sue's mouth can be trusted or believed. Um, I think the name of the book should be changed around a bit to Reckoning is a Mother because she didn't reconcile with anything or she just made up stuff she created the story that she wanted to tell to justify 
her poor parenting and make it seem like her son was the, uh, the monster that he was. A um, few things that I noted the intro, you aptly pointed out that Sue couldn't stop pulling out her checkbook, but all of a sudden she couldn't write a check. Um, I believe Randy Brown, everything he said seemed 100% accurate. Um, same thing with the parents of the Hispanic young man that were killed, that was killed at Columbine. I believe him too. Um, when Randy Brown said Eric was like a pipsqueak or whatever, I'm like, so you mean he wasn't a ladies' man like Dave Cullen said? Because remember, Dave Cullen like highly sexualized him and had him sleeping with grown women and all types of foolishness. Um, I did write down the whole thing about Dylan committed the massacre in spite of the way he was raised. I'm like, that? Mm, no, because if you had raised him properly when uh, Eric drug that heavy bag in the house for their sleepover after they got all the diversion, that would have never happened. Uh, I wanted to know whether or not she chants Isaiah Schultz's name in her mantra when she says all the victims' names, because I don't think she probably includes him. And I definitely want it because she lies so much. I want to know which parents were hanging out with her afterwards, the people who were victims of the massacre, like, who came over the house? Who was it? Um, because all these people absolved her of all guilt, and they were hanging out. Why would you go over their house? Like, that is so weird. Nobody does that. Like, I would, I would be scared to go over my child's, the, the home of the parents of my child's murder. Like, that doesn't even sound logical. Um, she said that Dylan didn't learn whatever he did in their home. And I'm like, well, where did he learn it? Did he learn it over the Harris's or like maybe perhaps between your house and school and blackjack pizza, he picked up on all this. Um, she made a point to state about how well she raised him and he was helping old ladies across the street and whatnot. But I wrote down, plenty of murderers have good manners. It's not like every murderer is a complete savage and you can just be like, oh, wow, manners are terrible. He must be a murderer. No, it doesn't work like that. Um, if Tom was teaching the boys all these wonderful lessons about physics and whatever else and geometry and why was Byron sweeping the parking lot at some, like, hardware store or something like that or flower shop and Dylan ends up shooting up the school like she just doesn't want to face that neither she nor Tom's parenting was effective for the child that they raised the children that they raised um yeah I just I just learned that Sue was a liar and we'll never get the full story of what happened with this massacre because so many people involved um, helped cover it up, including the families of the perpetrators. And with that, I'll end my call. Thank you. Hey, Fuller says, even in The Godfather, you get a Fredo every now and then where you can have really brilliant parents who do everything and all the resources and bedtime stories and great nutrition and that boy just won't do right, you know. You, 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 
do all that you can, you know? And they just, they, although she did say he got it turned around eventually, uh, Byron I'm talking about, of course. <laughs> she said he eventually, he, he put that mop and, and broom down, got out of the parking lot and got his, got his act together. Eventually that cat turned it all around. He just needed to be a parent. See, take on a little responsibility. Who knows? Uh, much obliged, uh, fresh princess in Philly. Uh, total absence of accountability from Sue Klebold. Uh, other folks who dialed in, uh, hand up. You have commentary to share. Proceed. May I be heard? Lauren, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Um, good evening, everyone, and thank you for allowing me to speak. Mm, in answer to the caller's question just now, she said, you know, like, who hangs out with their children, you know, the murderer of their children, the parents, white people, like, they aren't like we are. Um, you know, I guess I didn't learn that in this book, but it's certainly been reinforced. Um, at the beginning, when you were playing that segment from Mothers of Monsters, and I think she was actually talking about Sue Klebold's book, A Mother's Reckoning, she called it unflinchingly honest. I thought that was noteworthy. Um, and then Randy Brown, when he was talking, you know, he turned right around. He said, hey, most of this book is a lie. You know, the truth matters more than anything else. And it matters more than your feelings are hurt. I, I thought that was really important. I... I don't think money is the primary reason for Sue writing the book. She already had more money than most people do. Um, what seems really important to her is what other people think and say about her, her reputation, perhaps. Um, let me see. As far as the segment today, I don't know. I kind of have a lot of notes, but... So right at the beginning, she's talking about this dream that made her cry all the way to work. She has the baby, and she can't find a place to lie the baby down. You know, I really, you know, everyone has dreams. I, I get it. But she has practiced deception so much in this book to where when she tells a story like that, I, I doubt the validity of it. Uh, I don't know if it happened. Um and she said, it seemed highly likely we would be held responsible. On the basement tapes, Dylan and Eric were blatantly homicidal and suicidal, whipping weapons around like toys. Tom and I had recognized Dylan's room in one segment, so the weapons had been in our home at least one night. Okay. Um, yeah, the weapons had been in your home at least one night. Um, the intensity of our son's rage on the tapes made the entire family seem culpable. What could possibly be said to prove his violent tendencies have been hidden? See, she'll, she'll give herself away every now and then. Yeah, all y'all do seem culpable, and that's what she wants to know. What can I say to make these people think we didn't know? I think that's her major concern. Um, she said we were oh, – give me a second – Okay. Um, sorry, I lost my place right fast with my notes. Okay. 
She said, we were threatened and often felt afraid. Unfortunately, our inaccessibility and failure to speak up in our own defense had led people to believe we were hiding secrets. That's a that's written in an unusual manner. Um, people typically say keeping secrets or hiding things. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say hiding secrets. And also, when was the Clebo family threatened? I think she would have told that story three times if it had actually happened. And also, we can't prove people's feelings. So there's that. She wrote, the media had portrayed us as wealthy in part because my grandfather had been a successful businessman, but he'd left his estate to a charitable foundation and our home, which looked like a massive compound, I guess it means not, from the aerial shots that appeared on TV had been a fixer-upper. So we'd lose our home and have to declare bankruptcy. What was that in comparison to what we'd already been through? And I think the answer to that question is nothing. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how much they've been through, but, you know, it, even if they did lose their home and all of that stuff, which would be terrible, I, you know, I wouldn't want to be homeless. But, you know, her children or her child shot a lot of people, and they caused what can accurately be described as terror for Millions of people watching that stuff on TV. That's, I think that's a big deal. Um, let me see. She said, I received a lovely note from the sister of a murdered girl who wrote that she didn't think parents were responsible for the actions of their children. That doesn't seem like a threat. It seems like more empathy and understanding than who deserves. Mm. I drank gallons of chamomile tea tried every homeopathic remedy for anxiety I could find at the health food store. I was terrified I would not be able to get through my deposition and torture myself with imagining what would happen if I had an anxiety attack while on the stand. Okay. Why didn't she just take the medicine that she had been prescribed? This lady is saying that she has had anxiety since she was a child. I think Sue had enough money to go to the doctor and get assistance if that's what she actually wanted. Um, I'm not allowed to talk about what happened during the depositions except to say that it was terribly painful and I believe unsatisfying for everyone involved. She has not actually wanted, this is my view, I don't think she's wanted to be honest. She could have told the truth about many things if she really wanted to. Mm. She talks about going to the grocery store and picking out the apples and the hardworking farmers and then uh, letting a old white lady skip in line. I showed Dylan how to be gentle, putting the fruit into the basket, and we made eye contact and said a polite thank you to the cashier. You know, even if all of this stuff is true, it's, it's unnecessary nonsense in the context of this book. I don't care about picking out apples in the grocery store or letting old white ladies cut in line. Why did your son take bombs to Columbine High School and plan to kill hundreds of students? That's why most people are reading this book, to try to gain understanding about what happened at Columbine. Not to read 336 pages of puff about Sue being scared of imagined threats and and not being scared 
of her murderous son. That's, it's ridiculous. And then there was another line that said, through sports, he helped them understand fair play. Just, you know, talking about Tom and the two sons, uh, Dylan and the other one who had the cat. They certainly learned how to play fair, and fair equals white. And at this point, when white is used as a description of a person, I take that to mean deceptive, violent, and insensitive. You know, a person who not only acts in these ways, but a person who enjoys that. Like, that's a white person. And I think non-white people should understand that. It would help us a lot. Um, let's see. Anything to trigger an attack. Driving past the coroner's office when they take where they taken Dylan's body, boom. Watching an old movie where a cowboy throws dynamite into a barn, boom. Red flowers on a bush, boom. The repeated use of that word boom seems insensitive and incorrect. <laughs> Just not really surprising. Coming from Dylan Cleveland's mother, but wow, that it just that stood out to me. And um, towards the end of it, she said, I now understand that anxiety is a brain disorder I will live with and manage for the rest of my life. Even when I am not in crisis, the possibility is always with me. Because of this vulnerability, I carefully monitor my response to stress as people at high risk for stroke monitor their blood pressure. I meditate, do yoga, and do breathing exercises and exercise daily. I see a therapist and take antidepressant medication if I need extra help. Over time, I have come to listen to my anxiety and to recognize it as an indication of something amiss. So my question is, who exactly does not have a brain disorder, according to Sue? And that's all I have right now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Rocky Mountain Boom. Lauren. Love that part uh, of the book, the repeated boons. That's I had that in the hashtag when we were reading uh, Colin's book, and because I said that's number one on the list for me. This is a bombing, not you know a shooting, and they were b- bombing. The goal was to blow up the entire school and get the first responders because they had the explosives IEDs in the car outside so when the police and everything kind of boom get them too hijack a plane Rocky Mountain they're known in that part of the world for explosives and so that comes up in Tim McVeigh Rocky Mountain boom any hoodles uh let's see the uh she, the 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 threat now sue says that she's threatened all the time that's one of her major talking points we were threatened and frank underground railroad they had the hottest oh my goodness it was the worst ever what about when byron was attacked by the racists out in colorado and he needed medical assistance remember she told us about that maybe maybe that's a part of the attack because I think that's the only attack that we've heard of against her family in the book. Unless we want to add the uh, restaurant incident that we heard about last week. I can't think of any other incidents where, and I agree, if she had been attacked, we would have probably heard about it three, four, five times. 
that's all we got. And I think we had some, I don't know, about this Byron into like, was this a drug deal going bad type of a thing? Like, I agree. I think her reputation, the people, when we voted, motivation for this book, attention was one of the reasons I suggested. Does she want attention so she can go out and do these speaking engagements and such? 15% of the people said, I think that was the major motivating reason, attention. More so than the people who thought guilt about this. I think that, I don't think that's number one, but I think that is a big one to go out and uh, I think that was the one of our elitists who dialed in and said, now she's recognized. Dylan Klebold is Sue Klebold's mother. <sighs> Narcissism. Uh, the For our previous caller, I did forget Fresh Princess. You can see the BBC documentary, Raising a School Shooter. Now that is not exclusive to Sue Klebold but she's like the most famous person in it there's a scene where Sue is sitting sitting down with Dave Sanders one of his daughters now they're not in her house but it's the same thing so you know and they seem like they hang out on a regular basis even Devin comes and kick it, kicks it that's another one Sue has so many of those omission lies in my view Randy Brown talks about important things that she leaves out and that in my view that is and it's not my view people who study and write about lying say that that is an integral aspect of lying deception when people willfully omit when you write this book and you keep telling us about Devon and Devon and she came over and she sat and blah 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 and talked about Dylan and she was so sad she wished she had went to Devon's funeral I mean she wished she had went to Dylan's funeral pause at this point you know Dylan wrote in that journal yeah love and all this and wrote in a very homoerotic way about his love for Zach and how Devin messed all that up when Zach and Devin start being boyfriend girlfriend messed up the trio that he had with Eric and Zach and how this is all messed up because they would go out and do the missions the firecrackers and all that other old criminal activity he said I killed Devin that should have been in the book if you're going to name her specifically and how she cared so much for Dylan and Dylan did go to her birthday party they got pictures for that I said then man they got because this is in documentaries where they talked to her I said then man I don't think at this point she had seen those journals I would love to hear what does Devin have to say at the point where what he was talking about killing me what man (laughs) like now let's hear what your thoughts on this are Any hoodles. Um, but you can see raising a school shooter where Sue is with some of the victims hanging out, kicking it. Uh, I think, oh, and it was Rachel Scott because she talked about the parents who said, Our daughter, this is our daughter. She, they talked about all the evangelicals and all that. It was Rachel Scott's parents, I'm very sure. They were the ones who said, Hey, we don't blame you, and you know, this is just supposed to be, and all that. And unless I'm in here, uh, we had someone who had commented before that they think most people do not agree with or do not accept all of this they reject Sue Klebold's message and all that I do not think that's true I talked about the Amazon reviews 88% of the reviews on Amazon and it's thousands of them well over 5,000 reviews 88% of those are 4 stars or more less than 6% of those thousands of reviews 
less than 6% are two stars or less. Someone had said on YouTube, I think they looked at her TED talk, the comments are turned off, and they interpreted that same way. They don't accept what Sue Klebold is pushing. They would have given her lots of thumb downs and all the rest. I do not think that is the case at all because there are a lot of YouTube videos with Sue Klebold. Most of it is the same thing. I'm just going to read you some of what they're saying. So this is from a snippet from the, the video that we started with today. That was from the video, not the mother Mothers of Monsters movie. That was from when Sue Klebold went north to Canada, hey, to talk to them about all this suicide murder. And they talked about how she was so honest. <laughs> like, are you serious? Unremittingly honest. That was the way they said it. Like, are you serious? Did you read the same book we did? What? Ask about those rats in the house and all. Uh, so the comments, and there are almost 800 of them. Sue is a victim as well, and her speaking out like this to help other people is so brave. I have so much respect for her. Heart, 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 heart. I cannot even fathom the emotional pain this woman has endured. My heart breaks for her. She is beautiful and brave. Comment three, her resilience, courage, and love for humankind is unheard of. Thank you, Sue. Comment four, I have felt badly for both Dylan and Eric's parents from the beginning. I can't imagine the horrors they've endured since the shooting for each of the families and loved ones of the victims and the horrors and tragedy they've experienced. Dylan's and Eric's parents have likely endured more. And it just goes on and on and on. I love how they made her feel so welcome. This woman is strong and is doing everything she can to help parents better understand their children's mental health in order to help prevent other tragedies and death. We'll get one more. I've long waited to, wanted to say something about Mrs. Klebold, but never had found the appropriate place to do it and this seems to be as good as any I read A Mother's Reckoning as soon as it came out I just stumbled upon it this book gave me so much compassion for her a new perspective on what Columbine on what the Columbine tragedy was when I saw school shootings on the news I did feel sorry for the families of the shooters who become judged and ostracized by the world in an instant but I always wondered how didn't they know what type of people were they? This book taught me that. Taught me how they could be so easily me. And what a thing to have to live with knowing my child, my heart and soul had murdered other children and then killed themselves. I feel so much love and passion for this woman and this family. Wow. Excuse me, guys? Wow. Don't you mess up our moment. Man, you callous <laughs> no count. What is wrong with you? Man. Man. What's odd about it? There's tons of them. What's odd about it? It's just like the people who are commenting didn't read the same book. Yes, they did. I, I just don't. Mm -mm, mm -mm. I'm not buying that. It's, she didn't. She didn't tell us anything. She told us what she wanted to tell us, and that was just what she wanted to tell us. She gave us recipes. Um, she taught us how. <laughs> she taught her kids to let people get live 
couple of the neighbors walkway or whatever and how she could see the booty and flowers and she drinks chamomile tea and the house had rats like that all be hers. That's all be hers. And if the comments are really not like if they're not filtering out the bad comments and people are like, Oh, she's so strong, she's so beautiful, it's giving Sue Light would probably read those every day just to get her a little bit of narcissistic adrenaline boost. I just, I don't, I don't believe that these are like the un, unfiltered, unedited. I can't believe that because I don't believe people are that like um, blinded. I don't know if that's the, the, the right, right way to say it. I'm quite sure that's a metaphor, but yeah, none of this sounds right. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you, homie. It's got well over 100,000 views. Uh, There were well over 1,000 people in attendance. It doesn't look like they have to have security and people there to throw tomatoes and rotten eggs and urine at her. Uh, She's invited to speak to places all the time. Uh, And then uh, this is from Wes85292. I was six months pregnant. I remember the fear that I had for my unborn child who is now in prison. Wow. None of this is her fault and you have to be crazy to think otherwise. She was a wonderful mother and did the best she could. 88% of the reviews on Amazon out of thousands are just like that. Now, I mean, hey, that could be bots, but I mean, whoo can't be bots if it's a thousand people in attendance and you heard them clapping to give her a warm Canadian welcome that can't be bots she does a lot of public speaking engagements this is a New York Times bestseller I stand corrected we are in the minority gang (laughs) I just it would be sad for us to wrap up and think to go out in the world and think the people who read this book think like us that is not the case. They think Sue, what I just read, give me, let's get one more. Let's get one more. <laughs> one more. How brave this woman is. Wow. My heart truly goes out to her. And how unprofessional and disgraceful the governor blamed this on the parents. <sighs> anyway. Uh, oh, we got one more. We didn't finish the book, so we got one more. Uh, let me see. I didn't do my notes. Uh, I read one li- uh, from our listener. Email number one from a listener. Dear Mr. Renegade, in response to your question from last week's program, I did not urinate off the roof of my high school or any other school I attended for that matter. I may be mistaken, but I thought the urination story that Sue shared last week involved multiple young white males urinating together. If so, it's just another example of the homoeroticism in white culture. Hmm. After following along with the book study, I believe that Sue is unrepentant. I believe she would not change a single thing about her parenting. In her memoir, Sue is trying to convey to readers that she did all that she could to love her son, and unfortunately, it just wasn't enough. Pause. That is the title of this book in German. Love 
isn't enough or something really really close to that love isn't enough Romstein continuing uh, love wasn't enough to prevent him from carrying out the school massacre it's almost like she is daring readers to identify what they would have done differently from all the things that she did in her book Sue indicates the following she and Dylan talk with one another she spends time with him she disciplines him she hugs him she tells him she loves him she provided food and shelter for him she says she even noticed things odd about his behavior and his physical appearance in the last few months of his life at most the only thing she might be critiqued for is not recognizing the suicidal signs Dylan displayed regrettably she just wasn't aware of what the signs were at the time. She had not yet consulted all the mental health professionals whom she quotes in her book. I find many of these assertions she makes regarding her alleged good parenting to be highly suspect. After all, it can't be corroborated that she actually told Dylan that she loved him or was affectionate towards him or that she accepted or that he accepted her discipline. Sue is narcissistic and contrary to what she says she doesn't take responsibility for her son's actions she is quick to blame others for why her son killed 13 people and tried to bomb several hundred others I found it interesting that one of the things she mentions that appears to have irritated her most about Dylan's behavior was when he didn't buy her a gift for either Mother's Day or her birthday that came up again today it was not his vandalism or being suspended or writing faggot on that locker which she just minimizes as a scratch or committing a felony that angered her that was just boys being boys white people are not necessarily interested in holding other white people responsible for their bad deeds I think that is enormous I mean yeah I think that's why she could have white people come hang out with her and do documentaries where they drink tea and talk casual and chit chat catch up on all the you know scuttlebutt that's happening in Littleton and all the this is uh, raising a school shooter continues rather than the scorn and contempt that she alleges to receive Sue is treated with so much care and sympathy that's why I read all those comments people bring her gifts share intimate stories with her and protect her from any possible negative experience never mind that she raised a psychopath who murdered 13 people and wanted to murder hundreds more and she did nothing about it in fact she is exhibited throughout the country world as an expert on suicide and victim on the Columbine massacre even some of the people whom you have had as a guest and whom have written or spoken critically about the tragedy at Columbine including Jeffrey Cass Peter Langman and Stephen Singular seem to be inclined to consider Sue to be a victim and ultimately not responsible for her son's actions of course she was still a minor he was still a minor at the time so wouldn't that make Sue and Tom responsible that's what I was thinking too like man I mean he's a child man he hadn't even graduated high school yet anywho uh, we had other folks who wrote in we'll get to that uh, we will get our last section of the book in to wrap up I did feel a little bit icky about being a yoga instructor practitioner uh, with this but I mean lots of race soldiers do yoga anything else I get in real quick before we move on I do not regard the basement tapes as a contagion if anything if I was going to use that medical anecdote I would say they are the anecdote 
to the virus that is the lies uh all of that you know dylan is about love and all the rest of it and even why did they do this those basement tapes get to a lot i mean really that's what they made them for and you can even dang isn't this what they did in natural born killers yes all of that could be analyzed but oh my god we didn't want those released uh anything else she goes right back to blaming Eric there are literally people who say they appreciate that she people who do interviews with her say that they appreciate that she doesn't blame Eric in the book but she does it all the time on saying that Dylan was vulnerable that's why he was susceptible to Eric what are you talking about he was not vulnerable. He was not controlled. Eric was not some puppet master uh, in all of this. Like, stop it, Sue. Just stop it. Uh, let's see. She says his journals are filled with his struggles and conscience. His journals also filled with him talking about wanting to kill Devin. You conveniently left that part out. Um, let's see. I thought when she talked about Tom teaching him about science, engineering, and construction so that he can make bombs... Uh, the part about going to the grocery store so they can learn about the non-white farmers who get the apples and strawberries for them sounded way Pollyanna-ish and not believable um, let's see when she said Dylan was not raised in poverty or exposed to my knowledge to toxins such as heavy metals which have been connected to violent behavior pause for Freddie, Freddie Gray and the Negros who do have to live with lead poisoning they have whole libraries worth of documentation on that which Sue is probably familiar with but I thought dang I thought they lived in the projects of Littleton they got the rats in the leaky pool you don't have lead paint too dang but that also just did to me just stood out as more of her bragging of the elitism and the affluence of all this and then you want to oh we were so poor and victim like oh god oh uh Yes, she has to put emphasis on in spite of the way he was raised. Uh, the paragraph that Lauren read, a listener highlighted this. I'll read her email after the second portion that it seemed highly likely we would be held responsible on the basement tapes. Dylan and Eric were blatantly homicidal and suicidal, whipping weapons around like toys. Tom and I saying Negra. Tom and I recognized Dylan's room in one segment, so the weapons had been in our home at least one night. Yep, the intensity of our son's rage on the tapes made the entire family seem culpable. Telling on herself, I think that's what Lauren said. What could possibly be said to prove his violent tendencies had been hidden? Although it was the truth, I couldn't see how anyone would believe it. I barely believed it myself. Second most important line in the book, in my view, although I could certainly see how some might say that should be number one. But yeah, that is a big one. I think she revealed a lot uh, about herself, maybe even unwittingly with that one right there. Um, anything? <laughs> Oh, and then she says, eventually the suicide loss community helped me to see that it was Dylan's behavior, not mine, that had been pathological. I think that's another big one. Why would you even need convincing of that? Do you have doubts? Because I certainly have doubts, especially after reading this book. Like, oh, my God. Yes, I have doubts. Maybe it was some pathological parenting that greatly contributed to all of this. 
rap. Didn't I say last week I mentioned the meds? I said, oh, my God. Let me see what Sue Klebold's medicine chest looks like. I said that last week when we brought up Mothers of Monsters, and then, bang, she walked right into it this week like, man, come on. And that's probably widespread. No, because I brought that up when she said that Denver didn't have the drug problem. And I said, please. The prescription medication epidemic. And then I said, let me see your medicine chest. And she walked to it this week. Last chapter, Sue Klebold, a mother's reckoning lies through and through. I'm in agreement with Randy Brown, but we are in the minority. Catherine Massey Book Club. Wrap it all up. The World Health Organization defines mental health as a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to her or his community. My anxiety disorder showed me what it feels like to be trapped inside a malfunctioning mind. When our brains are impaired, we cannot manage our own thoughts. No matter what I did to try to think myself back to balance, I didn't have the tools to do it. I understood for the first time what it meant not to be in control of my brain. Understanding this gave me a great deal of empathy for others who suffer. I'd been trying for years to understand how Dylan could have done what he did. Then my own mind ran out of control, and I entered the world on the other side of the looking glass, a private seething hell in which unwanted thoughts took control and called the shots. The sad, scary truth is we never know when we or someone we love may experience a serious brain health crisis. Once I was feeling better, I couldn't believe how distorted some of my thinking had been. For the first time, I understood how Dylan could have thought he was going in the right direction when it had been anything but. I still can't fathom what Dylan and Eric did. I cannot understand how anyone on earth could do such a thing, let alone my own son. I find it easy, if painful, to empathize with someone who has died by suicide. But Dylan killed. It is not something I will ever get used to or get over. Was he evil? I've spent a lot of time wrestling with that question. In the end, I don't think he was. Most people believe suicide is a choice, and violence is a choice. Those things are under a person's control. Yet we know from talking to survivors of suicide attempts that their decision-making ability shifts in some way we don't well understand. In our conversation, psychologist and suicide researcher Dr. Matthew Nock at Harvard used a phrase I like very much, dysfunction in decision-making. If suicide seems like the only way out of an existence so painful it has become intolerable, is that really an exercise of free will? Of course, Dylan did not simply die by suicide. He committed murder. He killed people. We've all felt angry enough to fantasize about killing someone else. What allows the vast majority of us to feel appalled and frightened by the mere impulse and another person to go through with it? If someone chooses to hurt others, what governs the ability to make that choice? If what we think of as evil is really the absence of conscience, then we have to ask, how is it a person ceases to connect with their conscience? 
My own struggle showed me, in a way nothing else could, that when our thoughts are broken, we are at their mercy. In the last months of his life, Dylan turned his back on a lifetime of moral education, empathy, and his own conscience. Everything I have learned supports my belief that he was not in his right mind. Brain illness is not a hall pass. Dylan is guilty of the crimes he committed. I believe he did know the difference between right and wrong at the end of his life, and that what he did was profoundly wrong. But we cannot dedicate ourselves to preventing violence if we do not take into account the role depression and brain dysfunction can play in the decision to commit it. Of course, that is a risky thing to say. The idea that people with brain disorders are dangerous is among the most pervasive and destructive myths out there, and it is largely false. Most people with brain disorders and illnesses are not violent, but some percentage are. We must arrive at a way to discuss the intersection between brain health and violence in an open and non-judgmental manner, and we cannot do that without first talking about stigma. You can probably name several Olympic gold medalists and star quarterbacks who have blown out their knees or major league pitchers who've had Tommy John surgery, but most of us can't name a single celebrity who has struggled, successfully anyway, with depression or another mood disorder. Even celebrities are afraid of losing their jobs or being seen as a danger to their children. Wealth, power, and the love of the public is no defense against that stigma. My own experience with anxiety showed me the risk and shame involved in making my pain known to others. I believe I am a profoundly honest person, sometimes to a fault. And yet, when I was experiencing spikes of panic, I felt so ashamed of what I was going through, so humiliated by my inability to get on top of the problem, that I went to great lengths to conceal my experience. Afraid of being seen as weak or unstable, I had done my utmost to hide, or at least disguise, my inner storms from colleagues and friends. And I'd been able to do so with little difficulty, even though I believed my mind was trying to kill me. I'm sure my colleagues and casual acquaintances noticed all was not well. Does Sue look thin, shaky, pale, distracted to you? Except there was a perfectly good reason for me to seem under the weather. No wonder she seems run down. You know what she's been through. Just as I had once said to Tom, Dylan's course load must be too heavy. He looks tired. And, of course, he'd rather play video games than hang out with his parents. He's a teenager. Once I'd emerged on the other side of my own health crisis, I could see how shrouding it had isolated me. But the experience also helped me relate to others who hide the enormous pain therein. Most of these issues are treatable, as long as people get help, yet many do not seek the treatment they need, and stigma is one reason why. If you hurt your knee, you wouldn't wait until you couldn't walk before seeking help. You'd ice the joint, elevate it, skip your workouts, and then, if you didn't see any improvement after a couple of days, you'd make an appointment with an orthopedist. Unfortunately, most people don't turn to a mental health professional for help until they're in real crisis. Nobody expects to heal their knees themselves, using self-discipline and gumption. 
because of stigma, though, we do expect to be able to think our way out of the pain in our minds. As soon as my own anxiety disorder was under control, and I began to emerge from the quicksand, it was suddenly as clear as day. A brain health crisis was a health issue, the same as a heart condition or a torn ligament. As with those health issues, it can be treatable, but first it has to be caught and diagnosed. Every day, mammograms and breast exams help doctors catch and treat cancers they would have missed 50 years ago. I survived cancer myself because of these and can only hope that someday we'll have screenings and interventions at least as effective for brain health. Indeed, we must. Like many other diseases, brain illnesses can be dangerous if they are not recognized and treated. The person most likely to suffer from a destructive impulse is usually the one who has it. In some exceptional cases, people may behave violently toward others as well. That's not a given, or even a likelihood, but it does happen. Untreated illnesses can jeopardize the people who have them, and those around them. When people who are struggling cannot get access to the life-saving treatment they need, it puts them at increased risk of doing harm to themselves or others. Self-medication with drugs and alcohol is common when people aren't getting proper treatment and support and abusing those substances is a factor that dramatically increases the likelihood of violence among those with mental illness. Whenever I interviewed an expert for this book, I asked them this question. How do we talk about the intersection of brain disorders or mental illness and violence without contributing to the stigma? Dr. Kent Keel summed it up neatly. The best way to eliminate the belief that people with mental health issues are violent is to help them so that they're not violent. It's very hard to know who is going to commit an act of violence. Profiling doesn't work. But violence can be prevented. In fact, threat assessment professionals have a saying, prevention does not require prediction. It does require, however, that we increase overall access to brain health interventions. Dr. Reed Malloy, a pioneer in the field, uses this analogy. A cardiologist may not know which of her patients is going to have a heart attack, but if she treats known risk factors, such as high cholesterol in all of them, cardiac events will go down. The rates will improve further if she attends closely to patients at increased risk, the smokers and the overweight. And they'll go down even more if she makes sure that patients who have already had heart attacks comply with heart-healthy programs and take their medications. A similar tiered system is already working in some schools. At the Tier 1 level, everyone should have access to brain health screenings and first aid, to conflict resolution programs, and to suicide prevention education. Peer intervention programs teach kids to seek help from trained adults for friends they're worried about without fear of repercussion. A second tier of attention is trained on kids going through a hard time. A student grieving a lost parent, one who has suffered teasing or bullying, or those in known high-risk populations. For instance, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender kids are at disproportionate risk for bullying so special efforts might be made to connect those kids to resources. 
The third level of intervention comes into play when a child has emerged as a particular concern. Perhaps he or she has an ongoing emotional disorder, has talked about suicide, or, as Dylan did, has turned in a paper with violent or disturbing subject matter. The student is then referred to a team of specially trained teachers and other professionals who will interview him or her, look at the student's social media and other evidence, and speak to friends, parents, local law enforcement, counselors, and teachers. The real beauty of these measures is not that they catch potential school shooters, but how effectively they help schools to identify teens struggling with all different kinds of issues, bullying, eating disorders, cutting, undiagnosed learning disorders, addiction, abuse at home, and partner violence, just to name a few. In rare cases, a team may discover that the student has made a concrete plan to hurt himself or others, at which point law enforcement may become involved. In the overwhelming majority of these cases, though, simply getting a kid help is enough. People who are involved in targeted violence are usually involved because of an underlying issue, Dr. Rendazzo told me. Often, that is a mental health issue. Usually, those mental health issues can be resolved if they are discovered and treated effectively. Better mental health resources can, without question, help to prevent violence. If we are serious about preventing violence, we must also recognize the cost to society when we make firearms so easily accessible. Dylan did not do what he did because he was able to purchase guns, but there is tremendous danger in having these highly lethal tools readily available when someone is at their most vulnerable. These risks are demonstrated, and we must insert them into the equation when we are talking about how we can make our communities healthier and safer. When tragedies like Columbine or Virginia Tech or Sandy Hook happen, the first question everyone asks is always, Why? Perhaps this is the wrong question. I have come to believe the better question is how. Trying to explain why something happens is how we can end up latching on to simple answers without actionable solutions. Only someone already in distress and with a vulnerability to suicide sees death as a logical solution to life's inevitable setbacks. It's dangerous to condition ourselves to view suicide as a natural response to disappointment when it is really the result of illness. The same thing, I believe, is true about what happened at Columbine. Dylan was vulnerable in many ways, unquestionably emotionally immature, depressed, possibly suffering from a more serious mood or personality disorder. Tom and I failed to recognize these conditions and to curtail the influences, violent entertainment, his friendship with Eric, that exacerbated them. Asking how instead of why allows us to frame the descent into self-destructive behavior as the process that it is. How does someone progress along a path toward hurting oneself or others? How does the brain obscure access to its own tools of self-governance, self-preservation, and conscience? How can distorted thinking be identified and corrected earlier? How do we know the most effective treatments at various places along the continuum and make sure they're available in any medical setting. 
How long can we fail to recognize that brain health is health and identify what can be done to maintain it? These are the issues that urgently need our attention. Asking why only makes us feel hopeless. Asking how points the way forward and shows us what we must do. As I learned all too well, brain health isn't an us-versus-them situation. Every one of us has the capacity to suffer in this way, and most of us, at some time in our lives, will. We teach our kids the importance of good dental care, proper nutrition, and financial responsibility. How many of us teach our children to monitor their own brain health, or know how to do it ourselves? I did not know, and the greatest regret of my life is that I did not teach Dylan. Conclusion Knowable Folds Following is the tweet-length description I wrote to introduce myself at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention Chapter Leadership Conference, 2015. Sue Klebold, Colorado Chapter, Loss and Bereavement Council, lost my son Dylan in a murder-suicide at Columbine High School in 1999. Still asking why. I support research. A day does not pass that I do not feel a sense of overwhelming guilt, both for the myriad ways I failed Dylan and for the destruction he left in his wake. Sixteen years later, I think every day about the people Dylan and Eric killed. I think about the last moments of their lives, about their terror, their pain. I think about the people who loved them, the parents of all the children, of course, but also Dave Sanders' wife, children, and grandchildren. I think about their siblings and cousins and classmates. I think of those who were injured, many left with permanent disabilities. I think about all the people whose lives touched those of the Columbine victims, the elementary school teachers and babysitters and neighbors for whom the world became a more frightening and incomprehensible place because of what Dylan did. The loss of the people Dylan killed, ultimately, is unquantifiable. I think about the families they would have had, the little league teams they would have coached, the music they would have made. I wish I had known what Dylan was planning. I wish that I had stopped him. I wish I'd had the opportunity to trade my own life for those that were lost. But a thousand passionate wishes aside, I know I can't go back. I do try to conduct my life so it will honor those whose lives were shattered or taken by my son. The work I do is in their memory. I work, too, to hold on to the love I still have for Dylan, who will always remain my child despite the horrors he perpetrated. I think often of watching Dylan do origami, whereas most paper folders are meticulous about lining up the edges. Fourth-grade Dylan tended to be more slapdash, and his figures were sometimes sloppy, but he'd only have to see a complicated pattern once to be able to duplicate it. I loved to make a cup of tea and sit quietly beside him, watching his hands moving as quickly as hummingbirds, delighted to see Dylan turn a square of paper into a frog or a bear or a lobster. I'd always marvel at how something as straightforward as a piece of paper 
can be completely transformed with only a few creases, to become suddenly replete with new significance. Then I'd marvel at the finished form, the complex folds, hidden and unknowable to me. In many ways, that experience mirrored the one I would have after Columbine. I would have to turn what I thought I knew about myself, my son, and my family, inside out and around, watching as a boy became a monster and then a boy again. Origami is not magic. Even the most complex pattern is knowable, something that can be mapped and understood. So it is, too, with brain illness and violence, and this mapping is the work we must now do. Depression and other types of brain disorders do not strip someone of a moral compass, and yet these are potentially life-threatening diseases that can impair judgment and distort a person's sense of reality. We must turn our attention to researching and raising awareness about these diseases and to dispelling the myths that prevent us from helping those who most need it. We must do so not only for the sake of the afflicted, but also for the innocent ones who will continue to register as their casualties if we do not. One thing is certain. When we can do a better job of helping people before their lives are in crisis, the world will become safer for all of us. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. By Sue Klebold. Valley Regional High School in New Jersey. There's more to these cameras than meets the eye. This school is one of hundreds across the country now using zero eyes, a human verified artificial intelligence system designed to detect guns and combat mass shootings. Here's how it works. It uses existing security cameras coupled with the company's AI trained to detect guns, plus a team of military experts working around the clock to alert authorities before any shots are fired. Critical because according to the FBI, 60% of active shooter events end before police arrive. Rob Huberty co-founded Zero Eyes. You can't watch all the cameras all the time. So we're watching behind the scenes for you. The Zero Eyes team demonstrated their technology using fake guns in an empty part of the school before students returned from summer break. I have a true positive detection. Copy local law enforcement is in route. We also had a camera at their Pennsylvania Operations Center, so you could see how they respond at the same time. This is Zero Eyes Operations Center. Look at this. The man on screen is only in the school's side door for a few seconds. And screen right, the moment his fake gun is revealed, the Zero Eyes AI detects it and this image is displayed on the operator's monitor. That's when the team springs into action, first with those trained experts verifying the threat. True positive. Dispatch alert. 
Dispatching alert. Call point of contact. Then immediately alerting school security and police with phone calls and texts. Getting more alerts as we're doing this. And it all happened before the shooter could even get in the hallway to fire a shot. You can follow this person with the gun throughout the school, wherever there's a camera. As long as their gun is brandished. But it's not foolproof. The technology cannot detect guns that are hidden or anywhere without a camera. Then what do you do? Good security comes in layers. Do I think we can really help in certain situations? Absolutely. But are we the end-all, be-all? No. For school superintendent Christopher Heilig, every extra layer of protection is critical. Does it make you sleep a little easier at night knowing what the next day might bring? You're Absolutely. secure? Absolutely. The first thing that we think about as superintendents, as administrators, is safety and security. But the technology has applications beyond just education. It looks like I'm at another school right now, but actually I'm in front of a green screen that's used to train the AI to recognize guns in school environments. But it can also be used in other settings, like a mall, public transit, even a casino. Back at the high school, teachers like Aaron Matteo say the zero-eye services are worth the cost, which can run up to $50 per camera per month. I think anything that's going to save lives is always worth it. As classes start across the country, added security and more peace of mind. Rahima Ellis, NBC News, Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Catherine Massey Book Club, all done. What did we learn from Columbine? AI in the schools. They've lots of technology about that. They even got little robots now. They've talked about just deploy them. That way you don't give Reb and Vodka full 30 minutes or an hour free run, gun down everyone that they want. You send the robot in, so he can bang, neutralize them quickly. Their legacy continues. Number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, we will wrap everything up. If you have final thoughts, things that you would like to share that stood out in the text oh I told you I said the <clears throat> listener who read the book they were talking about some of the same excerpts I can get that email and then we'll hear from our other listeners so this is email number two uh, but they were reading this book while we were reading Dave Cullen they wrote reading this line from Sue Klebold made me think of her motivations for protecting her child's reputation as a victim I saw the end product of my life's work I had created a monster Sue Klebold told Solomon for the first time I understood how Dylan appears, appeared to others. When I saw his disdain for the world, I almost hated my son. I wanted to destroy the video that preserved him in that twisted and fierce mistake. Very interesting. In her book, she details putting forth 
great effort to prevent the basement tapes from being released so she can keep repeating her narrative on Dylan. It seemed the dominant narrative for most people. Eric is the manipulative psychopath and Dylan the unwilling accomplice. That's what she said, vulnerable, see? This excerpt shows that if released, people would see signs the family did have some culpability in their son's massacre. And this is the passage that we heard today, how she couldn't see how anyone would believe it. She barely believed it herself, that passage. The listener continues, look below at her reasoning for not releasing the tape. She did not want people to see to copy the Columbine massacre, but Dave Cullen states that the basement tapes rarely talk about the actual plans of the massacre and mostly consist of Eric and Dylan, Dylan using racist slurs and boasting about their superiority. So the basement tapes have not been released, but Dylan's journals have. The journals show him as depressed and desperate for love. Um, and then she gives a few more of the excerpts. Sue is trying to protect her son. Her excuse me. Sue is trying to protect her killer son's reputation. Uh, I apologize for jumping ahead of where we are in the book, but I have, well, we caught up now, uh, but I have to read, uh, but I have to read ahead because of my schedule. Dave Cullen states that Eric and Dylan and Zach were vandalizing homes regularly starting in 1997. There were police. The police were aware of this. This is not in Sue's book. Despite this, Dave Cullen seems very influenced by Sue's narrative. In his Ted talk, he recommends people to read her book and calls Dylan a suicide victim and Eric a psychopath. Suspected racists can do an excellent job at staying on code when it comes to protecting the reputation of their offspring, not the actual offspring themselves since we know they do not care about their children. I believe Mr. Cullen will have more details on the release of the basement tapes in the following chapter. Well, we already read that. Sue Klebold is supposed to be highly trained in adolescent behavior. She was an art therapist, counselor, special education staff who has extensive experience in psychology of troubled youth. She could not see any signs in Dylan. Mm. For sure. Uh, incidentally, the acknowledgments are at the end of the book. She did not read the acknowledgments, and that's, you know, cool in the gang. Uh, I'm just picking out three parts that I thought were relevant. Number one, many thanks. Go to Dave Cullen for talking with me about his research on the Columbine tragedy and for helping me recount specifics of the incident. He generously searched through piles of material to fact-check references when I needed his help with accuracy. I had said I thought there was some sort of connect because as the person who wrote in said, he shills for her and will tell people to check out her reports or whatever it is and that sort of thing. And he seemed very what shall I say, sympathetic to them with the Eric was dominant in all of this type of a thing and Dylan was sad and love and all of that. So that does not surprise me at all. Two, uh, she seems like she had some sort of contact with Dr. Dwayne Fuselet, that is the FBI agent who was allowed to see the basement tapes, greatly influenced Dave Cullen's view of all of this. I thought that was important because I said he should have been recused from the very beginning. He had a student who was at Columbine at the time that all of this happened, and he had a previous student, an older, excuse me, he had, an, he had a son who was a student at Columbine when the bombing happened. He had an older son who was a previous Columbine student who made a video that included a theme of the school being vaporized. I thought those were two reasons he should have been recused from this investigation, but whatever. She gives a lengthy list of white people who 
work, devoted their time and insight. And then at the end, finally and most important, I thank Byron and Tom for not opposing or hindering my efforts to publish despite their discomfort with the idea, though they both made it clear that they did not want to churn up difficult memories, sacrifice their privacy, or focus on a time in their lives they would rather forget, they honored my determination to do what I felt was necessary. For this, I will always be grateful. I thank them both for their love, courage, and understanding. And then she gives Byron a little special bit of love to end, but I thought that was important. It seems they are very much not in this vein. I think even some of the callers had said it seemed Tom might have had uh, a little bit of appropriate guilt about all of this. Like, hey, I'm not trying to protect a reputation. I wish he'd never been born. I don't want to talk about all this, and I'm done. 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate folks who dialed in commentary to share before we wrap it all up line should be open proceed hey Gus um victim for New Jersey um I'm gonna leave I'm gonna I'm gonna continue with Tom um it seems like out of all this and this ain't you know really um you know given any <laughs> Um, accolades to Tom, but Tom, out of both families, uh, well, we didn't hear from the Harrison, but out of the Klebos, Tom seems to be the most rational. You know, Tom is not in the spotlight. Um, even as I stated before, when he, you know, basically said, listen, is, is, you know, he called the panel the Adams family. You know what I'm saying? Basically, even even he seeing how sick all this was, and I and 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 I, I strongly suspect this is what led to them separating. You know what I mean? I think Sue Klebo became obsessed with this work. You know what I'm saying? You know this is this is right now. This is her life work. This is her legacy, you know. And when she talks about the, when she ran down the list of groups of people who needed help from handicapped to LGBT, um, victims of racism wasn't added in that list. Not not surprising. (laughs) You know, so she has, you know, because, again, you know, victims of racism they preside in, you know, ungodly spaces like, you know, L.A., New York, and um, Chicago. Um, some, okay, let me look at my notes, what I was going to say. So she said, you know, we, we've all thought about killing um, someone. Um, it says um, he wasn't in his right mind. Brain illness isn't a hall pack. I'm just like, I mean, this 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 woman is unbelievable, and I believe also, and I agree with you when 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 you say when you were talking to the female caller, we are in the minority. If you pay attention to news, 
and what we see what's going on on the planet. We see the imbalance in the environment. You know what I'm saying? You see people denying, even denying that. You see people, um, you know, basically turning, you know, political figures who are clearly mentally disturbed or even in mental decline, turning them into, you know, demigods, you know. So to have people writing and sympathizing with Sue Clebo, it's it's in the norm. It's it's in the majority. We are in the minority. I'm pretty sure if everybody that's on this line, if they, they held another TED Talk and they, you know, sat us in the audience and we got up and said some of the things that we're saying tonight and throughout this book read, they would be throwing tomatoes at us. We would probably have to be escorted out of the auditorium with security. And when she keeps talking about the communities and, and, and all, all, all the help that's needed, I just keep saying she's talking about the white community. She's not talking about um, the Negroes in these, you know, in these ungodly uh, uh, places. Um, you know, even with, you know, she, when she keeps emphasizing, you know, he wasn't in control of his brain. And, you know, I'm like, like what, are you, what are you talking about? And she never misses the opportunity to throw the killer, the killer, the young, the young accomplice, uh, Harris, under the bus. You know what I'm saying? So in the beginning, she was hinting at, oh, you know, Harris, uh, you know, he also has a problem. But she's not really emphasizing, you know what I mean, the brain trauma or brain problems that Eric Harris may have had. So I, I, I would definitely be interested in hearing from um, the Harris family. Um and again, a black woman, black female, could not have written this book. Just like when you brought up the incident with the child that fell in the uh, gorilla or monkey cage. They would have rather that child and those parents to be killed than the monkey. And, I, and nobody couldn't tell me any of the difference. And that right there tells, tells a lot and says that victims of white supremacy, racism, could not get away what Sue Clebo is getting away in this text, within this text, our clues. Indeed, context of white supremacy. Oh, they got a memorial for Harambe the... My head hurts. They got a memorial for Harambe the gorilla. Anywho, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. President Trump defended the zoo's actions in keeping the boys safe, but there were many high-profile individuals. It seems like most of them white, who were very upset that the gorilla had to be killed to save this uh, child. 
I'm sorry, it's not because that that incident was not funny. The child could have been killed, and I'm vegan, so I don't like seeing animals harm. But really, like, woof. Parents could have been to jail, all that. They didn't get a book deal either. Whew. Uh, let's see. And much obliged for reminding us that line where she said, I'm sure we've all thought about killing somebody. Man, a second time. We've heard a white person say that during all this. We heard the white man who wrote the newspaper defending Sue Klebold and said, hey, we all got somebody in our family who didn't kill somebody. Calm all that judgment down. I don't, wait, wait a minute! Wait a minute! I, I don't, I don't get to follow everybody around all day long. But to my knowledge, nobody in my family has faced a murder charge. Now I might need to go to the family reunion and ask some more detailed questions, but I do not ever, 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 ever remember that coming up. WTH, man? No, I, I have not thought about hmm oh Leroy has got on my nerves get him up no 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 I have not I do not have just matter of fact Eric Harris put that on the diversion form homicidal thoughts yep that should have been a red flag it wasn't (laughs) apparently that's normal for some people no big deal in fact it wasn't a red flag Eric Harris got out of the diversion diversion program early. Early termination, they call it, even after he wrote out, yes, I do have thoughts about killing people. That's normal. Everybody does. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, star 6-1. Good evening. I'm John. Go ahead, ma'am. Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. And um, thank you, everyone, uh, for allowing me to speak. At the beginning of the session, it said the World Health Organization defines mental health as a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. That right there, it made me think of Dr. Welsing. Non-white people do not get to realize their own potential. That's what racism, white supremacy is, subjugation and abuse. Non-white people can't even make contributions to our communities because we don't have communities. So, yeah, we don't qualify for mental health. Um, It said it's very hard to know who is going to commit an act of violence. Profiling doesn't work. Um, Well, the kind of profiling where white people exhibit all sorts of warning signs that are disregarded because they're white, that doesn't work. I think the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior, but somehow logic does not apply. You don't, people don't use that sort of reason reason thinking when it comes to white people. Um, Sue said, if what we think of as evil is really the absence of conscience, then we have to ask, how is it a person ceases to connect with their conscience? Now, that's a nonsense question. She just said the conscience is absent. 
how can a person connect with something that's not even there? I, I just, you know, probably everyone on the line, we're not taking much advice from Sue Klebold, but the questions she asks are complete BS, and I really value questions, okay? This lady is on it. Um, she said Dylan did not do what he did because he was able to purchase guns. Well, he couldn't have shot up the school without a gun, and I think that's pretty simple. And she said, when tragedies like Columbine or Virginia Tech or Sandy Hook happen, the first question everyone asks is always why. Perhaps this is the wrong question. I have come to believe the better question is how. Okay. Um, you know, I think both of those are valuable questions. I mean, hey, Dr. Wilson asked why, and, you know, Mr. Fuller asked how. Both pretty valuable questions. Um, let me see. She also said trying to explain why something happens is how we can end up latching on to simple answers without actionable solutions. I don't, I don't even think that's an accurate statement. Um, I think asking why can help a person, if you answer that question in an accurate manner, that can help a person to become less confused about the situation that they're in. And that can help you to change your behavior to something that will help you reach your goal objective. And you don't even have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. So um, I don't know. No one asked for my advice, but I guess I'll give it. I think we should ask questions, and I think we should look for accurate answers to the questions that we have. And, oh, um, let me see. It was something else. Um, Oh, in that audio segment, um, what sounded like a white lady, she said, I think anything that's going to save lives is always worth it. When they were talking about spending $500 per camera per month or whatever. And I just think that's not true. If that was true, white people would stop practicing racism immediately. And all of these guns wouldn't even be needed. That's all I have right now. Thank you. Thank you much, Lee. Lauren, fresh princess in of Philly, excuse me. Thank you for yielding. No problem. Uh, thank you for allowing me to speak. So, I guess overall, I don't feel like I got much out of that I didn't initially think when we first selected the book. I thought she was going to give us a little more insight instead of just a book of lies, but it seems like she is the person who had, who a person with a personality disorder raised a child with a personality disorder. Her narcissism is really profound, and I it it's unsettling to me that she has chosen to infiltrate the suicide community. Is it's just it's 
it's weird. But overall, um, thank you for a very informative book study session. Um, I did learn a lot about this incident. And with that, I'll meet my life. Much obliged. I kind of, uh, I was anticipating that she was going to give up a lot of, uh, well, I'd heard that Randy Brown interview. So yeah, I had real low expectations in terms of how much, you know, honesty we were going to get in terms of what actually happened with all this. But yeah, right on, right on. Much obliged for hanging in, uh, hopefully worthy of your time and energy. Other folks uh, with commentary that they wanted to share? We nab everybody. Make sure we didn't miss anyone. Get their final thoughts in. Let's see. Copy heart. Yes, sir. Greetings, Mr. Gus. Uh, Greetings to all the callers, all the listeners. Uh, I just have a few little final thoughts on the book study. Uh, She uh, started off... uh, I don't have any notes tonight, so I'm kind of rant, I'm kind of freestyling a little bit. Um, but uh, when she was talking about uh, from the beginning, when she said, uh, "Oh man," when she was talking about, uh, let me get my thoughts together for a second. Um, she said that uh, brain injuries was a whole past. Uh, I think the uh, previous caller I spoke about that. Um, I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting that she said that. Um, I don't know if we know about how the, that movie coming out. I don't know if that was like if there was a correlation between that. But um, Sue Sue was uh, she. I, I would say that um, this just taught me about just what white people. They pretty much they <laughs> she they do what they want. Um, she um, whenever they no matter they're, they're always the victim. Um, and this whole book, that's pretty much, she's been the victim of, of everything. Um, she's been, they have a whole community of people to help her out. And that's another thing too. Um, I feel like, uh, all these, uh, uh, suicide preventions and all these organizations, they're, they're not for us. They're for them. Um, they're to help them out in these types of situations like this, where she can use this as an excuse. Um, they came to her help. I mean, her her son killed thirteen people, eleven people, and uh, they came to her defense and helped her out. So um, I think that's something that we should think about when we're um, going to seek. I know. I mean, if we can use the assistance from them, if they're going to uh, compensate us, yeah, we can use it. But we gotta realize that that's that's what they're here for. Um, I just want to tell everybody um, I appreciate. Uh, I'm glad that I was a part of this book study. Man, I really learned a lot from all the callers. Uh, everybody's observations was man excellent. Um, Catherine Massey book study. This is this is like one of the most instructive things I do in my life, Mr. Gus. I, I appreciate y'all. Have a good night. Much obliged. Reading more imp- <clears throat> excuse me. Reading more important than watching television. Indeed. White people are always the victim. Always doesn't matter what and she killed excuse me. 
her son and Reb killed 13 people. Yes, 30, and then injured, you know, dozens. Um, but they're always, it doesn't matter what happened, doesn't matter what they did, what their role in all of this was, they are victims. And this is a tremendous illustration of community. Regardless of what has taken place, what you have done, we got your back. Even the people who are critical of you, even they got your back. Randy Brown there, the rest of them got a house to stay at. People coming to check on you, make sure you're okay. People on the job work with you, help you get your book published. White people have a community. We do not. We being victims of racism, non-white people. Let's see. Um, the I think as well with Fresh Princess, where she talked about the, it bothered her in terms of the way that Sue has attached herself to the white suicide community. One, there are other white people there, so I mean, hey, they might, looking out for our white sister, we do what we do. Uh, but I mean, hey, I'm looking to get my narcissistic supply, whatever it is. I don't have any gumption anyway. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever. And it seems like she has a lot of support, even if it wasn't them. She had a lot of support just in Colorado in general. So, yeah, but that is that is for sure noteworthy. Um, The make sure I get in our folks who emailed. I think we're up to number three. Is it email number three? Hi, Gus and Cal's audience. Comments on last week's discussion. No peeing off rooftop rooftops for me. Not my idea of fun. Besides, I think I would fall off the roof if I attempted such a thing. Two, at the end of this book, I think Sue's overriding reason for writing it is absolution. She cannot and will not accept Dylan for who he was, a sadistic mass murderer, and her part in making him what he was. I watched a documentary where Brooks Brown said that Dylan, oh, we heard from his dad, uh, that Dylan was enjoying massacring children in the school on the day of the massacre more than Eric was. Three, I don't think Sue lived in daily fear of Dylan, but he was volatile in the home just as he was in school. That's why she didn't tell him to hold the steering wheel properly as he was likely to get into a rage and kill them all. However, I do believe the Mother's Day incident, when he told Sue he wouldn't be able to control himself if she didn't stop pushing him, was worse than she is letting on. That's what Fresh Princess said. I think Sue knows how close she came to losing her life that day. Dang! (laughs) That is straight out of Mothers of Monsters. Uh, They even have a scene. They have an exact scene like that where he's in the kitchen next to the refrigerator, turns around and he bumps up and knocks out like that. Anyway, number four. At the start of the book, you asked if Sue was telling any lies in this book. I think the question is now, what did she tell the truth about? Very the, the pudding and tapioca, maybe, if that's even accurate. That's probably about it. Not a whole lot. Five, she keeps claiming that she wasn't allowed to mourn Dylan. I don't believe anyone has said that Sue, not wanting her to present him as a victim and minimize his crimes, is not the same as telling her she shouldn't grieve her son. I agree with that as well. 
uh, what I've learned from the Columbine study. Six, no crime, even those committed against white children, is too abhorrent for white people to cover up. Seven, equally, white people can be forgiven anything by other white people. Absolutely. Number eight, white people's commercialization of the Columbine massacre. Holy bejesus. There are so many movies, so many books, paraphernalia. It is out of this way. They had tours. They had tour buses going to Columbine. The uh, clout chasing white man. It just goes on and on. video games on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Number nine. It's common for many white people to sit and think about killing other people all day long. Apparently so, because we even got another dose of that this week. Apparently so. Number 10, the power and determination of just one white woman. Sue Klebold. Sometimes that's all it takes. One good white woman. Even a mediocre white woman. Comments on this week's reading. Number 11. Tom and I recognized Dylan's room in one segment, which means the weapons had been in our home at least one night. One night. Sue Klebold is a stand-up comedian. Clown. Twelve. I had written those difficult letters to each one of the victims' families. Then I had withdrawn to spare them the painful intrusion of hearing from me, even though I'd wanted nothing more than a connection with them. Yet the only point of contact between us came through our lawyers. I wanted to bridge that distance. I knew from studying other violent incidents that it could significantly reduce trauma if perpetrators' family could sit down with the victims to apologize in person, to cry and hug and talk. As impossible as it was to envision, acknowledging each other's humanity seemed like the best course of action. As painful as the interaction would surely be, I craved it. Sue Klebold really is contemptible. Writing letters to them was an intrusion and traumatizing. She has absolutely no regard for her son's victims and believes she has the God-given right to terrorize them. God forbid they should have a say in whether they meet with the parents of their family's members' murderer. Next. I will personally rejoice on the day neurobiologists map the precise mechanism in the brain responsible for empathy and conscience. I think Sue lacks these cognitive traits, and the same was true about Dylan. This book does not come across as a super, like, empathetic book. Really, to anybody, she barely mentions the victim's name. Dave Sanders, I think, is the only victim's we even get named in the book. I, oh, Mr. Ma I don't even think she mentions. She just mentions Mr. Mauser. She doesn't mention his son's name. I have to go back and double check, but I don't think she mentioned uh, his son, Daniel Mauser. I don't think he mentions, she mentions his name. Let's see. Uh, Fourteen. Sue claims to have wanted the transcripts of her deposition released, but she fought the release of the tapes themselves. 15. I spent a lot of time wondering if Dylan had a biological predisposition toward violence, and if so, whether or not we were responsible. I did not consume alcohol while I was pregnant with Dylan. He was not abused in our home, physically, verbally, or emotionally, nor was he subject to anyone else being abused. He was not raised in poverty or connected to violent behavior. 
Neither of his parents abused alcohol or drugs. He was well-nourished. This reminds me of Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers' important work on who and what the perpetrators of school-based violence are and white people's resistance to the truth. Man, so glad we had her on at the very beginning of our Columbine study, way back in the springtime. She said emphatically, this is not a mental health problem. This is a white people problem. For sure. Uh, And, ooh, did we get all the emails? One more, I think. One more. Dang, all righty. Four, email. Uh, Maybe it's just me, but by the time I was a junior senior in high school I was not interested in any sleepovers at a male friend's house like Eric and Dill what were the sleeping arrangements hmm maybe it's a stretch on my part uh, I think at least the last sleepover at Dill's house Eric was going to sleep in Byron's old room I think that's how it was but then the bed wasn't even used so that was you know just their ruse for you know finalizing the bombs and getting all the rest of the schematics and such together uh, so they probably weren't that interested in the sleepover either. He continues, <clears throat> never took a whiz off a roof. Bizarre and inappropriate actions regarding body fluids, genitalia, and orifice is, orifices is a large part of white male culture. Vomiting, a.k.a. booting, as in you got ripped on those sake bombs and spent the rest of the night booting from Urban Dictionary. Farting, also discussed in this text, mooning, pulling down your pants and showing your rear end, etc. Chapter 17 Young woman, program for at-risk young adults working to get GEDs, father who threw her into an empty bathtub and beat her. I have been appalled by the story. I suspect this was a non-white victim. Her first response is not empathy, but revulsion. Hmm, important. Uh, two, we were threatened and often felt afraid. We had some contact with a few of the victim's family members over the years, the father of a boy who died reached out to us about a year after the tragedy. I was stunned by his generosity of spirit, and the mother of one of the murdered girls asked to meet. She was forthright and kind, and I liked her immediately. I received a lovely note from the sister of a murdered girl. She continually talks about the threats and fear that she felt, but the text is filled with examples of how people, including parents of murdered children, empathized with her and were accepting it all seems so manipulative on her part. I agree wholeheartedly, especially when it gets to the point uh, in that uh, interview that we started with today, that was from 2017, when it gets to the point where you're now saying, we lived like Anne Frank. Oh my God, we didn't like, come on. Number three, I can't, however, share regret. I wanted to apologize to the families in person at the depositions, but our lawyer didn't agree, saying I am profoundly sorry is one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. I don't believe you wrote this book to say you were sorry. You keep saying that you did not accept any significant blame for the massacre, and anyone who says otherwise is just wrong because of all your research. I agree. I do not. There is at no point in reading this text that I take away like, oh, the profound sorrow or guilt that she, I did not, none of that. Deflecting blame. That was the major takeaway. We were struggling and poor and down and out, and everybody hated us, and it was so hard, and oh, uh, it wasn't my fault. Number, uh, Number four, Dylan did not learn violence in our home. He did not learn disconnection or rage or racism. 
he did not learn a callous indifference to human life. Dylan, or excuse me, didn't learn racism in the home. Oh, it's just a coincidence that he was raised in a racially restricted region. Amen. Number five, we had not done everything right. You're no angel. Amen. Number six, Dylan was interested in gratuitously bloodthirsty movies like Reservoir Dogs, Natural Born Killers. But so was every boy we knew, every white boy. He also played Doom. Detractors point out that millions play these games. An estimated 10 million people have played Doom. Sure, only a small group of group go on to become school shooters, but there is a spectrum of violent behavior, pipe bombs, guns, non-lethal methods of terrorizing non-white classmates, etc., which is pervasive in white culture. 7. Dr. Adam Lankford cites a desire for fame, glory, attention as a motive. Ralph Larkin calls it killing for notoriety. Mark Jurgensmeyer, who writes about religious terrorism, calls it the public performance of violence. Additionally, as Mr. Fuller concludes, they importantly do it just for fun. They were having lots of giggles during this, according to the reports. Eight. Even at the early stage, though I was clear on one point, I did not and do not believe I made Dylan a killer. If that's the case, why all the deceptions and lies in this book? No accountability whatsoever. I agree thousand percent. Nine. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it wasn't my decision. All four parents of the shooters had been deposed and the attorneys never reached consensus on everyone's best interests. I suspect he sealed them because they were revealing truth about the system of white supremacy racism. Agreed, there was so much widespread deception and conspiring throughout all of this. Enforcement officers, the school, the parents. Uh, I think there would have been a widespread consensus and effort like, hey, it's all over with now. Nothing can be done about it. I'm not giving up my pension. You want to lose your... Forget all that. What is it? Cover your butt. Can we get the shredder here? Like right now? Let's roll. Let's roll. Let's roll. Get our story together. Uh, Let's see. Number 10. The papers the next morning. There it is again. Conscientious parents would have known what their sons were planning. Our failure to know meant we were, were responsible. Nothing would ever change how people perceived us until I figured out a way to deflect responsibility by writing this book. Blame it on Eric. Chapter 18. The University of Colorado at Boulder. Hey, prime time. Man, we were supposed to read this right now. Isn't that amazing? Prime time. Wonder what Sue Klebold thinks about that. Rowdy nigger that come up here and calls those mischief. Uh, University of Colorado, Colorado was hosting a conference called Violence Goes to College. I decided to organize a panel discussion on murder-suicide. Tom had found my immersion depressing. He called our panel the Adams Family. Panic, attack, tranquilizers, my compulsion to publicly represent normalcy made the pressure worse. Amazing how people classified as white can become so-called experts with so little effort. No degree, no fellowship. Just read a few books and interview some experts. I'd never heard of doing this answering with a tape recorder. White girls do it best. Go Coach Prime. Isn't that crazy? Like, gee whiz. Number two. Tom, 2014, after 43 years of marriage, we decided to part ways. I bet Tom felt like he escaped. <laughs> a 
I'm done. I'm done. The book tour, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want to hear no more about it. I don't want to talk about all this. Y'all go out and make up all this goofiness, and I'm done. I'm done. Number three, the World Health Organization defines mental health as a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. Nothing in this definition suggests to me that non-white people qualify for mental health. Dr. Welsing said that four, brain illness is not a hall pass. What a metaphor. I suspect she is trying to have it both ways. Dill's brain illness is not entirely an excuse, but I'm going to use a silly metaphor to let you know that it is mostly not his fault. She does so much of that through this book, the metaphors and deflecting blame. Number five, I've been able to do so with little difficulty, even though I believe my mind was trying to kill me interesting phrase as if her mind is separated from her body maybe just like Dill she's not entirely responsible for her thoughts but has a brain disease it almost sounded like she was saying that right with all the panic attacks and uh, medications and everything man I got kind of a brain illness myself you like man I'm struggling too come on uh Six, asking how instead of why allows us to frame the descent into self-destructive behavior as the process that it is. How does someone progress along a path toward? Not sure there is much of a distinction between the two terms. How did this happen? Why? With the school shooting specifically, they are kind of closely related. Why did this happen? They are closely related. Not quite the same, but they are definitely closer when you start digging into the how this happened oh yeah you will quickly get to the whys of this they are definitely all of the "Eh, you wrote this paper boys will be boys that's how this happened a big part of it conclusion think often of watching Dylan do origami but he only have to see a complicated pattern once to be able to duplicate it in many ways that experience mirrored the one I would have after Columbine. Origami is not magic, even though the most complex complex pattern is knowable, so it is too with brain illness and violence. Sue again returns and concludes with the symbolism of origami, turning something ordinary, a piece of paper, into something beautiful, reminding the reader that even though his final years were filled with ugliness, he was once capable of producing beauty skillful isn't she (sighs) acknowledgments would not have been able to complete this book without Laura Tucker hundreds of pages of writing and thousands of hours of heartache might have died with me had Laura not transformed them into a publishable manuscript this book was not written primarily by Sue Klebold she submitted a bunch of disconnected notes and utilizing transcripts of interviews newspaper articles videos etc this was fashioned into a coherent text by Laura Tucker I can just hear Mrs. Tucker telling Sue well maybe you should accept at least a little blame for this massacre in this section Tucker is known as a New York Times best-selling ghost writer who has written many books. One of her books is a 
memoir by C. Vivian Stringer, the renowned collegiate women's basketball coach. She was coach of the Rutgers women's team, who were referred to as those nappy-head hoes by the suspected racist radio shock jock Don Imus. Mrs. Tucker's name was on the front cover of Mrs. Stringer's text. How about that? I'm sure they hooked it all up. And even that, if this had been the parents of that black child who fell into the gorilla pit, Harambe, I don't think his parents would have gotten a New York Times best-selling white ghostwriter to pen the story of their ordeal and how they were threatened and felt attacked and pilloried for doing nothing but legally visiting the zoo and we get compared to crackheads and told that we should die and be criminally charged just a thought anywho uh, before we wrap it up see any quick note she does so much name dropping I think that that is so tacky and such a big part of white deception white people co-sign on other white people's lies and we talked to other white uh, guests about Columbine and them saying that Sue was a victim and uh, even in the book where she quotes and them saying that do, uh, Dylan he he kept some of his humanity because he let some people go like are you serious that sort of not the fact that you have so many white people who just oh Sue Cle- Hercules Hercules for Sue Clevo what did she do that's worth it that same thing I said about Eric Harris he said you all should have given me more compliments what has Sue Clevo done that is worthy of applause or caping but that's having a white community doesn't matter what you do or don't do we got your back we got your back and they do uh, the but the name dropping is in coral because it also it gives her this air of uh, expertise and I've talked to all of these people that I know what I'm talking about because they look like please man get out of here you can read that's about as much you can read whoopee uh, she says the people that are most likely to be bullied are gay lesbian bisexual she doesn't mention uh, the non-white people we're not going to be bullied I think Dr. Welsing would say the master bullies are the racist white supremacists. Ask Isaiah Scholes about that. Uh, let's see. I don't know what she means when she says Dylan was vulnerable. He was six feet tall. He was about to graduate high school. He had already been accepted to college, even though he was certainly not qualified, in my opinion. He lives in a white suburb. He has a pool and a tennis court in his house. What about him is vulnerable? He drives a BMW. Please pick out the vulnerabilities sound like Kyle Velasquez was vulnerable even might have had some brain problems vulnerable uh, she says in the conclusion Sue Klebold Colorado chapter this is her introduction that she does for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention chapter leadership conference 2015 I thought she said she doesn't do local speaking because people don't want to see her in Colorado that's what I mean about you tell unnecessary lies. It's no reason to say that if it's not true. Is that more sympathy grabbing? You got to go out and lie until I can't even show my face in Colorado. They'll spit on me. 
come on, man. Um, anything else to get in? Oh my gosh, he says, does Sue look thin, shaky, pale? I always think that's an important one, that pale is consistently associated with poor health, even death. Absence of melanin is not attractive. It is generally considered a sign of poor health. Even albinism. Uh, she says, I'm a profoundly honest person, sometimes to a fault. Now, that's where you need the like, oh, my God, side splitting comedian. You got Chris Rocker and Woody Allen beat. You are the funniest person in the known universe. Profoundly honest. Does anything about this book strike you as profoundly honest? I think this book is evil. Forget if Dylan is evil. I think this book to write about something that is so serious, uh, I mean, at least honor the people that died and suffered and were terrorized through all of this, uh, to just put this nonsense out here, talking about tapioca pudding and nonsense, like, man, come on. This is vile, evil, through and through. Uh, 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 anything else? She says she was never once felt afraid of him. I do not believe her. I could take the incident at the refrigerator that we talked about before. I'm going to take that incident in the car that she told us about where he had one finger on the wheel. I think most logical parents, guardians, your child is driving for the first time they have a finger on the wheel I'm going to say something I'm not going to be cowering in my car and have you bust up my ride and I got to be on the bus Uber or whatever else come on much less man it's 10 and 2 have us mess up and get a ticket it's 10 and 2 the fact that you can't even speak up and say something that right and she, Randy Brown she didn't tell us about that time because it's in Cullen's book they go out to eat and he's got on his black coat and his glasses from Natural Born Killer. He says, man, I don't know if you're scaring me, but you are scaring the other white people in this restaurant. Take those glasses and coat off. He's, mm, I'm a tough guy. Mm, got my black on. I feel like a god. Mm. That also, but that driving incident, I just get, like I said, my mom, it's no way one finger what is wrong with you don't miss lots of points where I say that I do not believe you Sue uh, let's see she said there was no obvious indication that he was planning something destruction that paper seems kind of obvious to me in the total context of we already got arrests and suspensions and everything else at this point that paper seems kind of flagrant but hey fiction nah. uh, yeah I guess that's good you can leave it there wow I learned so much I'm so glad uh, we were able to study Columbine uh, yeah learned so much Michael Moore I'm so embarrassed I'm so embarrassed this would be another illustration documentaries are not the same thing 
as reading because we didn't even read good books neither one Dave Cullen Sue Klebo we read in one case a wretched book about Columbine and the other one where he's sexualizing children we didn't even read great books on Columbine and they both easily trump bowling for Columbine the most well known documentary about all of this it's no contest same thing I said last year we were talking about Buffalo and Tops I guess if I could one more I'll see if anybody are we good we can let it go I'll, I'll check but my other thing to say would be Uvalde man that is the exact same story as this except it was lots of non-white children and staff that got killed man everybody if you paid attention you hung out for months listening and all that take some time to research what happened and it's still because it's the same thing where it's still unfolding where now they're going to say the exact same thing dang this was a cover-up where people sat around and Ooh, you don't want to tell them that we sat out here being cowards and didn't want to go into the building to save these non-white children. That is all coming out right now, this month still. And that's non-white children. So I would take a look. And that happened at the same time as Buffalo. Take a look at what happened in Uvalde. That is white supremacy racism through and through. And it's tons of non-white people who were the victims are the victims everybody satisfied any final shot comment everybody good for Columbine yeah I I was just um, I think this left a a lasting impression so it's like now anybody with bold at the end of their name you know Alice C. Bold Sue Bold um, or Sue at the beginning of their name, you know, Sue Clebo, Sue Africa, I'm going to be very, very suspicious. <laughs> so that's the, you know, just, just that's, that's the, that's the uh, impact that uh, this book has had on me. So anybody with the last, with, with Bold at the end of their name or Sue at the beginning of their name, my eyebrows are going to be raised from moving forward. deception there's so much in common between these Alice Bold again the worst book ever for some of the same reasons yeah well earned suspicion anybody else everybody good grand got in all of our Romstein and shit list and all the rest of it much obliged for everyone's participation hopefully we'll be more informed know about Isaiah Scholes Kyle Velasquez the other uh, 11 victims presumably all white victims uh, from this event 2027 so we can mark that on the calendar put a little alert there 2027 when those depositions become available we should revisit we are still alive broadcasting there should be a revisit what did they say and uh, if anybody finds any constructive material books you know anything related to Columbine that should be you know hey at least worth an inspection a look 
see if they want to come and chat it up, be a guest. Uh, this is one that we should not forget all of this information and material moving forward. It seems like they're still going to be shooting up the schools, uh, at least for the immediate future. We'll be here tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Saturday compensatory call-in, and uh, we will update on what the new book will be uh, the top of the week. Have to make a final decision sometime by Monday. I'll update and well, actually, we'll be on the air, so I'll be able to say it and post it uh, online. Reading more important than watching television, for sure, for sure. Uh, sobriety would be best, especially if you have children. Modeling, I mean, hey, you want to get to uh, brain health? No alcohol, other narcotics for those young developing brain computers all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. No name calling, no gossiping, no throwaway offspring. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, a brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.